this is Season 1, Episode 6 of Interesting Conversations. I'm your host, Craig Burgess, and this episode is with a very interesting chap, as these episodes always are. It's with a guy called Matt Bradley. His day job is actually much like mine, is a web developer. He runs his own web development agency in York, and I travelled all the way over to lovely York to have a chat with him about something different. In the first kind of 30 minutes of this episode we talk about technology but after that for the rest of it we go very very deep on talking about politics we discuss and vilify brexit we discuss and vilify several politicians we go really deep on politics so if you're into politics this is the episode for you we talk a lot about politics I'm really excited about this episode and sorry it's taken so long for me to do it, but it's two and a half hours long and (laughs) there was lots of editing on this episode for me to do. Anyway, I won't talk any longer and I'll see you at the end of the episode for a little bit of an outro. This is season one, episode six of Interesting Conversations with Matt Bradley, starting right now. So last time I got halfway through my last one and I ran out of space on my SD card. (laughs) Because I made a schoolboy error, so you'll love this one. I uh, deleted everything off my SD card, pulled it out of the Mac that I'd borrowed, and it was still it was still full. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'd forgot to empty the trash <laughs> on the Mac that I'd edited on. So, yeah, I had to stop halfway through and then restart. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a constant irritation for me, actually. Because the other thing is when you go to um, delete, uh, you know, empty the trash... Off a, off a USB volume or an external volume, it takes a million times longer than if it's just in, um, working on the in- internal drive for some reason. Yeah. It's really annoying with flash drives, though, because they're not even internal memory. I don't know why it still does that. Yeah. Because, you know, it's ju- it's a flash drive or it's an <laughs> SD card and, it, yeah. I, I mean, to be, to be quite honest, what I tend to do these days, if I want it blank, <laughs> I will just reformat it. Every time. Going to disk utility. Yeah. Um, or uh, the other thing I do is I tend to do it from terminal. Yeah. You know, RMRF. <laughs> the geeky way. <laughs> yeah. Have you heard that story about RMRF before? Oh, there, there are many. <laughs> Pixar's story about Toy Story. Really? Oh, dear. The, the, they, you know, they claim, I don't actually see how it could be true from a technical standpoint, but they claim that when they were first making Toy Story, you know, their first ever feature film, mm. they got... A considerable way through it, and then some fool did RMRF star in their main job folder and deleted half of the entire film. Well, they, all mm. the progress they had at that point, they deleted it all, and they didn't have any backups. And that was the only copy of Toy Story. Mm. I'm maybe misremembering some of it, but they definitely said that they deleted some stuff like that, and it's not actually possible to do that. Well, it depends on your privs. I mean, it is. <laughs> Well, yeah, if, <laughs> if you live dangerously, it is. You know, if, if somebody's got, I mean, if they're either a root user or they've got pseudo-privs, it's all too easy to do that. I've done that before now. In fact, root users, I presume you saw all that stuff about Max, didn't you? Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, that's terrifying. <laughs> Did you actually check it? Uh, well, actually, none of these machines are running... Um, High Sierra. High Sierra, yeah, so, so it wasn't a problem. Um but yeah, a little bit of amusement and slight concern about that one. Well, 
I did recently upgrade to High Sierra and I checked it and it was 100% real. It did it. I just couldn't believe it. You go go to your login screen on your Mac, click other because there's another user now. There's another user, literally, literally an other user. So now if you've got uh, guest turned on, you've got your name, guest and other and you can't turn other off. So you click on other from login screen type root, leave password empty, double tap enter, and it just logged you straight in. Mm. And you had full root access, full admin privileges. You could have changed the password on any other user accounts on that computer. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure exactly what they've done there, but it sounds like, from the way they described the fix, that what they'd done is basically accidentally switched on root login. Um, Because prior to that, it wouldn't have been possible to log in as root you couldn't log into terminal as root. Mm. The only thing you could do was was run sudo as as an admin user. Um, so, so I suspect that what they've done is is somehow accidentally switched on root during the upgrade. I think that's what they had done because <clears throat> I noticed that some stuff in terminal I could run that I normally couldn't run, and then as soon as they put that fix out for it, I couldn't run it in terminal anymore. In fact, it broke <clears throat> it broke half of stuff that I were trying to run in terminal. Right. Um, I didn't even realise, you didn't think about it at the time because I was just running it and it were working and then afterwards they've put some kind of fix in but yeah, it's just terrible it were actually the fix or you know, the fix that broke the thing so the fix that brought about root password you could just double tap enter and it let you in the, their fix for that the previous fix that they'd done well, they, they'd done I'm doing a terrible job of explaining this the thing that they'd done before that they'd actually done the root thing to fix another issue. Mm. So the other issue was that you presented with the login screen before, you put your username in, and you know you've got the little hint box? Mm. You clicked hint, and it showed your password. Not the hint, it showed the password. That was one month before the other major fuck-up that they've just made. It's extraordinary. (laughs) It's quite extraordinary, really. I just, I just, I just were thinking, where, what is Apple doing? Where has Apple gone? You know, this, this is not the Apple that I recognise. Yeah, I mean, I think probably some of it is, is uh, whether there has been a bit of a kind of culture drift there, and there isn't that level of attention to detail. I'm not sure, but I think some of it is maybe just the fact that they're basically trying to reimagine their OS as effectively a client of their cloud. So, you know, they are doing a lot of interfering with kind of um, how the user system works and things like that. And they're, they're also kind of rushing out, or it feels like they're rushing out patches that don't actually, or uh, products that don't actually particularly give you any new features. They're all about kind of reintegrating you further into iCloud effectively. Mm, that is a good point actually. They are integrating a lot well they're merging iOS and macOS. Ultimately that's what they're doing isn't it? They're eventually going to have one operating system that's going to work on iPads that's going to work on MacBooks. That's ultimately I think where they're going to go. Well I mean I think I'd, what's interesting is what um, you know I've got this um, massive the, iPad. Uh, the, the Moses tablet. Um, <laughs> the Maxi pad. Um <laughs> Uh, you know, the interesting thing about this is um, that obviously with a keyboard, this is quite a nice device to use as a uh, a substitute for a laptop, you know, in the same way you would with um, the new Microsoft 
tablets. Um, but in the last release of iOS, when they actually brought in the ability for you to actually save files down, it actually has a file system browser now, which uh, I confess I haven't played with yet, but um, it's pretty clear that they see a journey there towards the iOS device effectively replacing your laptop. Um, and, I mean, you know, the last the last release, the iPhone X, is faster than a MacBook Pro in some bench tests. So, you know, why would you need a laptop, in theory? Yeah. <laughs> well, you- when they announced the Moses pad, when they announced the 13-inch iPad, I said, this is the future of design, particularly design and particularly creative, mm. because they released the pencil at the same time that's where people are going to be going to eventually. People aren't going to be spending... Because at the minute, the only other alternative you've got is spending a lot of money on a Wacom tablet, a Wacom Cintiq, which starts at £800, I think. The proper one that I'd want to buy is £2,000, and it's actually a PC as well as a tablet, Mm. and you connect it to your MacBook, and it's like a second screen. And I think, ultimately iPads are going to overtake those because they're so quick and they're, they're just so accessible and you, you're you just not going to need all that computing power anymore. You're not going to have to update another operating system. You don't need Wacom, which mm. have always been terrible anyway. Wacom tablets are just terrible. They put loads of crappy software on your computer. They don't keep it up to date and it uses yeah. all your CPU. So I think ultimately that is, it will be the future for creative stuff because it's a lot more instant. Yeah. When you're, when you're drawing something or when you're trying to create something, it's a lot more instant on a touch screen than it is on a mouse and a keyboard. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the kind of, the user interface is not there yet for that. People have not worked that out. People have not worked out how that's going to work and that, that new kind of user patterns that people are going to get. They've kind of started trying it with things like, um, I can't remember, Adobe Layout, I think it was called, that they brought out exclusively for massive iPads. And using your pencil, you just drew a circle, and it drew a circle, drew a square, drew a square, etc., etc. And that's really fast. You can't do that as quick on any other device other than a a touchscreen device. Mm. So I think it is the future, but it's going to take a long time to get there. Yeah, well, I mean, I I, I use, you know, the reason we bought this is is, um, we use it in the office, or I primarily use it in the office just for sketching out wireframes and things. Because it's brilliant that you you, know, you can take it to a client, sketch it. You, you can download an image of their current document or what have you, and draw draw all over it and say, right, we need this over here and and so forth, and then email it off back here before I get back here, or add it to the ticket. So you know, it's the perfect sort of happy medium between sketching it on paper and using um, one of the myriad of incredibly painful to use wireframing tools um (laughs) you know which i've always detested personally (laughs) it's just it's just instant isn't it yeah that's the thing that it gets right but it's not powerful enough for it to be a main machine which also annoys me but also makes me happy because they'd have to make it a lot more technically complicated for it to become your main machine Uh, they're going for it They'll definitely mm. get there. I often, I've often thought, particularly when I had the iPad you've got, I used to have a 13-inch iPad. When I had that, I would have loved to have developed simple websites on it or make changes to existing websites that I've got. And you can do it with really, really complicated workflows on your iPad now. 
you can download a Git app and things yeah. like I don't want to get too technical, but you can do it. But it's really convoluted and it's really complicated. Yeah. Yeah. But that device would be perfect for that because if you want to make a quick change to a website or something, it's just so easy. It's always on unless you're one of those weirdos who turn your iPad off and it's just instantly there and there's no there's no processing time. There's no beach balls and, you know, things like that. They just Yeah. They just work. <laughs> they <don't>, TM. <laughs> yeah. Like MacBooks used to. <laughs> Although my MacBook is terrible at a minute. In fact, I've been moaning about it in office for weeks to the point, right, where I've been into Apple's Apple Store for about five or six times. They're actually making me a new iP- a new MacBook right now for free. That is how knackered my MacBook is and how much it's not my fault. It's, it's just fucked. They have replaced every single part in it. It's like Trigger's brush. They have replaced every single part, part in it now. And it's still got ghosts in it or something, and they're making me a new one. So that's that's a fairly new machine, then? It's just nearly three years old. Right, right. So it's the last MacBook, not the newest one, which I still think is better than the new one, because touch part, touch part, can't say it, touch bar is... Pointless. Yeah, it's just point- and it loses your escape key. The escape key is like one of the most important keys on your entire keyboard, and it's not there anymore. It's, it's a just, soft key. It's, yeah, you can't, yeah. You can't hit it when you're angry to get out or something. Right, see, that's why your MacBook's broken. <laughs> yeah, well, um, actually, I'd, um, I've made both of my previous MacBooks last far longer than. Um, you would normally, you know, most people exchange their MacBooks every kind of three or four years, sort of thing. Um, you know, your serious hardcore fanboys doing it every twelve months. But um, the machine I've got at the moment is, I think it's twenty ten, yeah. but it's got a one terabyte SSD in it. That's all you need. So it's it's yeah, it's, yeah. it's extremely fast. Yeah, and most of the rest of the technology has not changed. They've only mm. just recently put in seventh um, seventh yeah, generation processors. Before that, there's not much change. There weren't much reason to change it. And I I probably had the same one as you, actually, last time. And I only got I only got rid of it. In fact, I only had it for a year or something. I had it for three years, and then I sold it after I'd put an SSD in it after a year. And it was just to get a new a new MacBook, really. I, I didn't need to get it. It was fine. And I sold it on to somebody, and they still use it now. Mm. And that'll have been a 2010 MacBook as well that's outlasted my... 2015 MacBook or 2014 MacBook. Oh dear. <laughs> oh dear indeed. Yeah. Anyway, that is actually not the kind of stuff I want to talk about. Oh right, sorry. <laughs> but no, it's fine because I'll keep it I'll keep it in there because it's all interesting stuff if you're into technical stuff. Some people are, some people aren't. Actually, the most most of the stuff I want to talk about is politics because well, not just politics, but the news and yeah, kind of all other stuff. And you actually gave me a great idea saying, oh, is this a roundup of the year? It wasn't intentionally meant to be a roundup of the year. I just know that you're dead into politics and you're always ranting on Twitter, or at least you used to be, a lot more than you are now. Um, And I thought it'd be really interesting to talk to somebody about politics because I kind of did with my first episode with Ivor Timchak. He's into Mm -hmm. politics, but not in the same same sense. So it's basically an entire episode about all the shitstorm that seems to have happened this year. Last year, it seemed to be celebrities dying every two minutes. This year, it's just morals dying and <laughs> just 
common sense dying and everything else has just left left the world it feels like to me anyway so i've put a big thing here at but at the beginning about setting the scene and these are just a couple of things that i found earlier today that we can touch on as well so at the minute we're in york lovely york we're not anywhere nasty like Barnsley where I usually record these. <laughs> we're in Remain Voting York. <laughs> <laughs> we're in Remain Voting York whereas Barnsley was yes 70% leave. Uh, it's 5th of December so it's nearly Christmas and I've put down the entire world is exploding politically or at least it feels like that particularly Western you know we've got Donald Trump in the White House who when he first came into power I actually said well let's just see what he's like. You know, he might actually just turn out to be just running an amazing campaign and he's the most intelligent guy in the world. It's unfortunately (laughs) not turned out like that and he's a complete idiot. Uh, And everybody talks about him all the time. So he's either still an idiot or he's just amazing at PR. I don't know what that is. And obviously what affects us most of all is that the UK government is currently trying to push through Brexit and doing a complete hash job of it. They're currently trying to get to the second phase of Brexit. That's right now, today. In fact, they were talking about it. And Northern Ireland don't want it, basically. And DUP are going to be causing problems for Theresa May and Theresa May's shit. Um, (laughs) The US is stuck with Trump at the minute. And it is increasingly likely looking like he has done something with the Russians that is illegal, at the very least. And it's increasingly looking like he's been very involved with it. There's all sorts of stuff going on about that at the minute. I'm following a guy on Twitter called... Um, I've completely forgot his name now. Anyway, I'll put it in, put it in the show notes at the end. Um, oh, there it is. Seth, Seth Abramson. Abramson, yeah. Seth Abramson. Uh, he's completely on Trump at the minute. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's a lawyer, so he's looking at everything that Trump says. And the White House, when they used to have... Sean Spicer, (laughs) when they used to have Sean Spicer, Sean Spicer actually said that every single one of Trump's tweets should be taken as absolute statements from the White House. So Seth Mm. has been looking through a lot of Trump's old tweets, and actually some of them might end up incriminating him into this whole Russian inquiry and everything. So there's an American president who looks like he's involved with the Russians in a very evil way. Some people are saying that it's going to be bigger than Watergate, when it actually all comes out. So it could actually end up being a more interesting 2019 rather than a 2018. Um, And just actually today, Donald Trump has just this morning reportedly handed over his personal banking information to Robert Mueller, the lead in the FBI investigation, which could be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I I think probably what they're... I mean, you know, I can only speculate, but I, I would have thought that what... Um, well, he's going to be interested in really is, um, you know, when you're following the money, you want to know um, who are the other backers, you know, because Deutsche Bank on, on their own, um, as a lender, that's a perfectly legitimate arrangement. But you're going to want to know, you know, are there any other co-funders that are involved in these uh, deals? Are there um, any guarantors or any anybody else underwriting money who shouldn't be? Um, is there any indication that there are people who've got financial interests um, in those transactions that might have had an influence over how Donald Trump ran his campaign and how he would run the presidency? Um, 
what there will be to see there, I don't know, but it is interesting that we've got to the stage where uh, Deutsche Bank are prepared to hand them over in the first place. I think that's of itself a fairly significant moment. It don't. It does not feel real that there's a US president being investigated so heavily for this kind of stuff. In my lifetime, certainly I can't remember this ever mm. happening. The most serious thing Obama got investigated about were whether he were from America or not, and that were mainly driven by Trump in the first place. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it just seems crazy. It, it's gone past the point now where you can say it's just quote-unquote fake news or it's just people out to get Trump. There's something there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about this whole kind of Russia involvement thing is that it shows, you know, we all thought that social media was going to um, disrupt politics, was going to change politics, and we thought that politics was um, going to be vastly improved by the free exchange of information and people being able to express their point of view. Very few people anticipated, some did, but very few people anticipated that it could be used in this fashion to politically um, propagate misinformation to produce a, a, a result. Um, you know, we've got a kind of perfect storm of things really at the moment. You know, we've had um, an enormous economic crash. Um, the West in general um, are kind of largely stagnating as economies because of the way the world is changing. And that's a technology story as well. Um, and uh, interests who want to basically supplant the US and, and Europe as the dominant economic and political forces in the world can use social media to achieve those objectives. Mm. Um, it completely levels the playing field in a way that nobody ever considered, particularly because people in politics, I imagine, generally don't understand this kind of stuff. Mm. It's it's all it's all modern and also it's all changing every day. Facebook are changing their algorithms every day. YouTube are changing their algorithms. Twitter are doing it. Google are doing it. This is a difficult topic to keep up with for politicians and for anybody involved in politics. And the most telling example I think was in the UK actually in the last election. I don't know if you ever saw anything about it, but did you see those conservative attack ads that? well, the Conservatives, were doing against Jeremy Corbyn. They were basically doing American-style mm, yeah. attack ads on Corbyn, which is not allowed. It's not mm. allowed on TV. It's not allowed in traditional press. But there's no rules to say it's not allowed on social media. And there's no rules particularly to say it's not allowed on digital advertising. And that's the way they got around it. So what they did was they just put out some Facebook ads. They yeah. put out some Facebook ads. They put an attack ad out saying that Jeremy Corbyn's evil and Satan, etc., etc. And they got around all those rules because the the rules that they're playing by are old. The social media didn't exist. Yeah, well, I mean, that's you know, there's there's all the story at the moment, obviously, about Cambridge Analytica and uh, they their sort of data modelling and their targeting um, systems that they've been using to. Um, identify these sub subgroups on social media to target these ads at and the fact that Cambridge Analytica are kind of linked to the to the US linked to American politics linked to Brexit linked to various international interests their um, their funding isn't entirely transparent 
Um, it appears that they've been sharing data between different political parties, which they're not supposed to do, um, or different campaign groups. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but it's actually probably not. Well, I mean, it's basic, it's it's big data. You know, that's mm. that that's the thing that's kind of uh, politicians and the general public have been concerned about about this idea that um, your data is being gathered and manipulated in ways that you don't necessarily know about uh, by parties that are not accountable to anybody. Uh, I mean, most people were concerned that it meant that they would get, um, you know. Victoria's Secret adverts at work or something but you know it's much more serious than that it's actually um, at the at the doors of democracy to some extent it is and what people don't realise is that yeah it might be a harmless Tory advert or a harmless Labour advert that you end up seeing on Facebook but every time you see that advert it's influencing you it's both positive and negative so the the actual yeah it's still bad that there is adverts on all these new social media and stuff but people might be willing to dismiss it by just saying that it's just an ad that I can ignore but you can't ignore it because it's subconscious and I don't know how you solve that I do not know how you solve that to be honest no and I mean as as a parent of a a teenager um, I can say that the, the the interesting challenge of all of this is that um the generation that are coming up uh, are having to learn to cope with this constant flow of information, um, much of which is misinformation, and 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 figuring out how to kind of um, sift it and, and make sense of it. Um, and actually, that's going to be where the the battleground is really is with the next generation that come up, who actually they're going to be the ones who take control of this flow of information and and start to make sense of it because it's pretty clear that um, the generation past, <laughs> um, you know, the, the kind of 50s, 60s, 70s, um, they're the generation that have completely fallen for it because they've never seen it before. Yeah. Um, and obviously at the minute, those are the people that are in power that are making decisions. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, yeah, scary. Yeah, indeed, indeed. But on that misinformation thing, um, learning how to sift all through this information, it's a little bit like newspapers still. You know, newspapers tell their particular opinion. Some people don't realise that a newspaper is just an editor's opinion or a company's opinion. And that, once you learn that, that's easy to sift. You, you know, you know the Sun is a particular viewpoint, you know the Daily Mail is a particular viewpoint, but it's not as easy to sift that when you're getting sent an advert on Facebook and going to a genuine website that looks genuine that isn't. That That's the whole, I know it's, it's the catchphrase now, fake news. That is the whole thing behind fake news, that you or I, people who are technically savvy, that know how to make websites. We could make a website that looks exactly like BBC News, for example, and we can put out misinformation that looks absolutely genuine that could potentially get shared millions of times. And that's very different from a newspaper that's got a particular viewpoint that sometimes says things that aren't, that aren't appropriate. This is, this is different, and that problem is only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah, because, I mean, I think the other thing is that it's actually... Um one of the other kind of emergent phenomenons, particularly 
Twitter. I mean, Facebook is more friends group based and it tends to be your actual genuine social network that you build. Um, where Twitter has changed that model is, is you tend to friend people who are of like mind. You don't necessarily need to know them. You're not really sharing any particularly personal information with them. Um, and, and what that's done in effect is create global tribes. Mm. Um, and that's why things like fake news work because if you're in one of those tribes you will believe things that you want to believe absolutely and you will you'll find plenty of people who will be able to tell you that you're right um, mm. in your little network which is why we've got the flat earth <laughs> societies <laughs> and so forth because um, it's a perfect platform for that kind of thing you know if it the one person in your town who would believe that the earth is flat now has a hundred thousand friends on Facebook, on Twitter, um, and before they would have just been the person that everybody said, "Don't talk to him about science." <laughs> yeah. um, and and that's that's really at the heart of it. I think is that um, the 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 volume of those tribes is turned up. Um, by the fact that they can create these communities um, across the globe um, and that's both a good and a bad thing because it does mean that other social movements obviously use Twitter to do great things mm. um, and you know you have to take the good with the bad but it, it has changed politics definitely is that because yeah. some, somebody like Donald Trump, I do not believe, would ever have been able to get elected without um, without something like Twitter that, that allowed people to build up belief systems which had absolutely no basis in reality. Mm. Well, he, he's kind of come off the back of Brexit and that rise, that rise of UKIP, the rise of BNP. BNP are pretty much dead now, thank God. But he's... He's come off that rise of popularist thinking, which unfortunately is going backwards rather than forwards. It's very, it's very popular to be right thinking right now, right in terms of right politically. Uh, it's it's very, very popular to be quite isolationist. That you know, be imperialistic, take your country back, and you know that whole thing that the whole Brexit campaign was all about taking back control from who. From who? Who are we taking back control of? We'll get to that in a bit, though. But that whole thing—he—he's basically the 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 summit of all that opinion. That Brexit was kind of a, a smaller version of it, and Trump's come up the back backside of it and made a huge mountain. Who's brought out all these people that have got closed-minded thoughts? And not everybody. Not no. That's not probably not fair to say that. Not everybody who supports Trump is closed-minded. But he has legitimised a lot of those kind of people's thinking it's because the president is like that. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... Um, he doesn't always think about things that he's saying either and some of the things he says, like when he retweeted those um, those Muslim videos, yeah, those, yeah. You, you know, you cannot as a president retweet things like that because it legitimises small-minded thinking that is dangerous. Mm. Well, I mean, I think, again, I think there is... There's sort of um, a technology story in 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 the origins of how we've got to this point, um, because I, I I mean the 2008 crash. I mean everybody 
um, who had any sense was thinking, right, okay, well, you know, we saw this. We've seen this before, you know, um, 80 years ago. Um, and it led to the rise of the Nazis. Um, <laughs> and and so um, everybody was kind of, you know, when Greece fell over, people mm. were kind of um, watching in terror as the far right kind of appeared and then thankfully disappeared again. Um, well, didn't disappear, but um, didn't make any, any ground. Um, but what's what's kind of interesting about where we are now is that obviously we've had the 2008 crash, but our economic circumstances are different. The world has shrunk. Technology has shrunk the world. Globalisation has shrunk the world. Um, and people in the north, um, you know, in places like Barnsley and Wakefield, don't see any benefit from that. Mm. You know, um, they're not computer programmers and the uh, the coal mine where they used to work was shut by the Tories. Mm. <laughs> um, and uh, industrial employment is not coming back and it won't come back. Mm. Um, and so they're kind of looking at this and they're thinking, well, you know, when the banks collapsed, that, you know, I, I had to take on bedroom tax or I had to, uh, you know, take a pay cut or I lost my job. Um, and you can you can understand why people politically might want to lash out against that and against globalism because they might see that as the cause of their problems. But you can't turn back time. But, yeah, but that that's exactly what it was though, and still is. It's a big it's a big fuck you to conventional politics and conventional ways of thinking and it's a big fuck you to everything that's gone before it, even though it's happened before. But And that's what Trump represents, particularly. Mm. He's not a conventional politician. He's never held any kind of political office before. He's a private businessman. Whether he's a good one or not is up for debate. But he, he represents something that's never existed before, and that's what always happens, isn't it? When, when it isn't working, when the world isn't working, people demand change. Mm. And it... It happens every 10 to 15 years in the UK. Conservatives get into power, Labour, Conservatives, Labour, Conservatives, Labour, and sometimes maybe a little bit of Liberal Democrats, but, you know, just a tiny bit that once. It happens over and over. It's completely cyclical, but unfortunately at the minute we're at that very peak of the right-leaning thinking. Well, I mean, we're sort of in... Because you mentioned Corbyn actually earlier, and and it's sort of interesting in the UK, because obviously we had the... Uh, Theresa May's um, inadvisedly called um, snap election Um, and look how quickly the wind changed on that you know I mean before that when that election was called I had my head in my hands yeah me too I thought we've had it Um, and the speed with which the wind changed I mean I was genuinely debating whether I was going to vote Lib Dem or Labour because I was looking at the Labour uh, manifesto, and they were saying that they, you know, we were out of the single market. They weren't saying anything different to the Conservatives. Uh, but on the other hand, I was looking and thinking, well, I can't vote for anybody else apart from Labour because they're the only people who can actually stop Theresa May right now. Um, you know, a Labour vote would be uh, a, a Lib Dem vote would be a wasted vote in my constituency. So, you know, I did the the sensible thing, um, but. It's interesting that actually there does seem to be a genuine movement of kind of radical socialist politics as well in the UK, 
which actually has legs. Um, and, and while sort of the Democrats in the States are still tearing themselves to pieces over this question, we seem to have settled it. Yeah. You know. Um, it, yeah, it is amazing how fast it turned around. But particularly just before that election was called, though, everybody still thought that Jeremy Corbyn was an idiot. So everybody wasn't giving him a chance. Everybody listened to... <coughs> clear my throat. Everybody was listening to all the right-wing media say, he's useless, look at all these things he's doing. He didn't even bow at the cenotaph. He didn't even say the <laughs> national anthem. They were just, you know, it was constant attack. And it was exactly yeah. the same as to what they did with uh, Gordon Brown. They, mm. Apart from it, it won out in that situation. It just won out. I, I still remember just to go off piece a second, when they attacked Gordon Brown for writing letters and he spelt a kid's name wrong. So every time somebody died, um, it'll have been Iraq at the time or whatever, every time a soldier died, he wrote a personal letter mm. to the family and the Daily Mail or whoever got hold of it, but one particular one where he spelt the name wrong of a kid and the media went nuts. What they didn't say is that Gordon Brown is blind in one eye he was personally handwriting every single one of these letters each time, and that takes effort. You know, yeah. they didn't cover that. But that was the same thing with Jeremy Corbyn, that he was getting attacked, he was getting smeared. So I didn't know whether Jeremy Corbyn was actually capable or not, because even if you don't believe everything that's being said, if that's the only thing that's being said about somebody, you've got no other standpoint. I didn't believe it, I didn't think that he was useless or anything. And I kept saying to everyone, well, you've not actually seen what he's capable of. Nobody knows because even though he's been in government for a very long time, he's never held any kind of public yeah, position. So position, nobody, yeah. nobody knew what he was. The only thing that factually people knew is that he usually went against Labour in pretty much every <laughs> vote that he did. So that, that was the only factual thing that people knew. Yeah. And then when he came out, everybody else was thinking the same and when he came out and they called this election and people were going oh my god this is it this is the end of labor for 50 years yeah. he came out and suddenly there's this energized politician yeah that's got a very good pr company behind him teaching him how to be a real politician and what what was really nice about that the really nice about the whole thing even afterwards he still thought he'd won the election there was mm. still media coming out saying he'd, he'd practically won it but he didn't but what was nice about it is how positive it was. Yeah, it, the, yeah. the manifesto particularly was really positive. That It was just nice that a, a, a political party was putting something over that was positive, that wasn't saying, mm. ooh, we've got to tighten our belts this year, ooh, we've got to cut back on this, or we can't afford this, or we've got to do this. And that is what the Tories have done for the last 10 years. And they've, mm. the problem with that, though, is that they've hammered home that point of austerity so much that I, f I fucking hate that word, austerity. They've hammered that word home so much that when Corbyn and Labour came out with that manifesto, everybody went, ooh, we can't afford this. Mm. That was what everybody said, we, ooh, we can't afford this. It's mm. not realistic. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's... Um, you see, the funny thing is we can't, we, we can't afford not to do it. I think that's, um, that Precisely. was kind of the important point, really, was, you know, we've got to this point where people have voted for Brexit and and David Cameron seemed astonished that they'd done that yeah. after um, you know the global banking crash was causing people to lose their homes um, 
to to have to have their um, you know A and E cut back and have their uh, bedrooms taxed and have their uh, you know uh, wages frozen if they worked as a teacher and so forth. Um, nobody should have been surprised that a decade later uh, people were angry and didn't feel like the economy was working. Uh, now you know whether their response was the right one is is another matter, but. Um, I genuinely believe, and I remember this actually around around sort of 2010 when uh, George Osborne did his first emergency budget, and you had Ed Balls on on the other side saying "too far, too fast" were the words he used for the way that the economy was being cut back, the spending was being cut back. I mean, he was dead right, but uh, more importantly, um, when it became apparent that he was going too far, too fast. He then attempted to re- um, fix the problem by reinflating the housing bubble that had caused it in the first place. Um, and what we really should have been doing um, in sort of 2010, 2011 is building social housing. When people, um, you know, when, they, when the building trade was at its rock bottom, and the economy needed stimulus, materials were cheap, borrowing was cheap. Um, if we'd borrowed to invest to actually boost the economy then. Now, we might have had different problems now. We might have had debt problems and all sorts of stuff to deal with. But we probably wouldn't be facing a situation where the country has voted to chuck the whole economy off a cliff. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's because negativity just breeds negativity. <laughs> and they they came around with a very negative point that said, look, we're going to have to be that party that is that plays bad cop look we're gonna have to cut everything don't worry about us you know we're going to continue living the way we are we're going to cut everybody where it doesn't really matter to us but they came out with negativity and people responded with negativity and the the first positive sign you've seen in politics was when labor came out with their manifesto and Mm -hmm. it, it was just really nice to see that and also nice to see that jeremy corbyn's actually a good campaigner whether he's a good politician or not I still don't perf- to be honest really know because he's he's still not you know never been in any position of power as such so whether he'd make a good politician I don't know but he, the campaign that he, he he did was very positive and I liked that and that's what we need more of we we need it's clearly not worked has it we've spent the last 10 12 whatever years it is now trying to cut everything and telling people that we haven't got any money and it's not worked so mm. where do you go from there you can't continue cutting can you you can't continue taking people's bedrooms away from them on taxing them <laughs> you just can't no. well i mean i think you know the, the way that technology is changing the economy and changing the world um is is something that governments have still got to grapple with um you know we've now got countries um in Europe and Europe, the EU itself um, discussing this idea of um, universal basic income of um, there was a, a bill or there was a debate um, about the idea of an automation tax I don't know whether you've heard this No I haven't actually So the idea was that <clears throat> effectively um, a, a company that's using a lot of um, automation which replaces people yeah. doing jobs um, you effectively make those robots pay a form of national insurance right 
um, and that then contributes to the upkeep of the people whose jobs you've dis- displaced. Um, and, you know, on the face of it, that sounds like not an entirely unreasonable proposition um, because all of this automation is here so that we can have more free time. That's why we build it. Um, and we don't build it to impoverish us all. That's not what it's there for. Um so we do need to find some sort of model that means that not only do we get free time from automation, we also have the means with which to actually enjoy the free time that we've been given. Um, and, you know, I mean, the, the, the sort of neoliberal economic model, which is another buzzword that everybody goes on about, um, I mean, I am sort of probably largely a neoliberal, really. Um, you know, I'm, I am... I, I am the um, the centrist dad, <laughs> basically. He was confused by the world, yeah. but um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I you know, largely sort of, I suppose, of of the idea that you know you need a balance between sort of a state and a private sector that kind of works for the good of everybody. So I, I have some sympathy with the kind of neoliberal model, but it doesn't have an answer to this question at all. The, the other argument I, I heard about automation is when a company becomes more technologically advanced and they start sacking people because they've made things more efficient, the theory is that those people that they sack or let go would then go on to another company to share their knowledge of a more advanced company and then they'd go on to that company and then start their own company potentially. The theory is that everybody becomes more upskilled, but in different yeah. skills. So we all become consultants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we all become consultants. That's the theory. And the thing is, we just don't know how that would play out, do we? we? Until it happens, we don't mm. know what would happen. Yeah, and I mean, you know, the the knowledge economy is all great. And, you know, obviously it's, it's done us both um, mm. quite comfortably. But not everybody um, is either involved in it or wants to be involved in it or necessarily has um, the skill set for that kind of thing Um, and what's going to happen is that you will have a diminishing number of people producing um, more and more of the wealth it's just going to happen I mean um, I was thinking about this actually preparatory to us um, recording today Um, the really good example of how ill-equipped that kind of classical um, model of the economy is, is that, you know, for example, if if we're now selling products that cost absolutely nothing to make, um, and nothing to produce and nothing to deliver, this, this is a, you know, well-established discussion point. But, you know, I mean, Apple, for example, um, can sell me an app that, basically costs them a few pence in electricity to deliver to me. And there you are. <laughs> I think they're listening. Um, and, you know, the, obviously there's there's intellectual property and, and creativity that goes into it, but the individual unit of sale, wherever it goes in the world, costs pretty much nothing to deliver. Um, and in the past, if you wanted to do that, you would have to have retail outlets everywhere, in the country or in the world you would have to have staff you would have to have people who made the product um, packaged it 
um, delivered it, um, all the rest of it. Um, those people aren't all going to become software developers. No, no, they're not. And there's lots of other emerging jobs as well, like uh, YouTube stars, for example. <laughs> people who make a fortune just making YouTube oh, videos. like Milo, you mean? <laughs> I've not heard of that one, actually. I've heard of PewDiePie, you know. Well, yeah. The, the most popular person on YouTube ever. Mm. So there's things like that as well that, mm. yeah, you've got to buy a bit of equipment, but every time they go on YouTube, that's not costing them anything apart from electricity. There's people... Mm musicians is another good example in fact I was listening to a podcast earlier it's never been easier as a musician to actually get your music out there you used to 20 years ago you'd need a record label then you'd need that money to go to a recording studio then you'd need distributors to distribute your music now you can make something on your MacBook and then get it online in 10 minutes and then make sales if you wanted to well that's the tricky bit because it's next to difficult to, next to impossible to sell anything yeah particularly in the in those kind of fields because uh, people expect it for nothing because they think it costs nothing <laughs> Mm, true, but the distribution model is much simpler yeah, than it was, like, it is, yeah. like, like it with is. apps. And people like authors, for example, can exclusively publish on Amazon's Kindle. They, there's no print costs or anything involved with it, and they're just, yeah, they're giving a portion of the money to Amazon to distribute it on their behalf, but there's none of that traditional distribution model as in physical products anymore. Yeah, yeah. That's where it's all going, I imagine. Yeah, and you know, I mean, um, imagine a future. Um, I, I mean, we, you know, we're probably into the um, the latter, you know, the, the midway through this century. But you know, imagine a future where large amounts of kind of white collar jobs are automated. So you know, your your sort of accountant, your um, travel agent, pretty much is gone anyway. Now, your estate agent is on the way. Um, those those jobs will just go, yeah. Um, and and there won't be an evil figurehead like Margaret Thatcher taking them away from people to blame either. No, um, but they will be in the hands. The, the the algorithms that run those systems will be either owned by Google or Apple or Amazon. Um, so so you you've got sort of. I mean, it's kind of like Karl Marx's worst nightmare <laughs> you know because you, you've, you've got a situation here where um, you, you've got big multinationals that not only own the means of production they actually own the workers as well and they also <laughs> don't pay the workers for the hours that they work a lot of the time as well mm. Well, I mean, you know, if if it's automated, you've got nobody to pay. You've got nobody. You know, they don't they don't need rest breaks or anything like that. Um, so, but but yeah, even, yeah. even even in the to take the Apple situation right now, mm. you make an app for Apple. You put it on Apple's App Store. They don't pay you for any of your previous time. They only pay you a portion of what they make through their system. Mm. So even that's already removed a traditional model of worker you know a traditional mm. capitalism model really a traditional industrialization model where you used to pay a person for a certain amount of time they'd work for you for eight hours a day you'd pay them for that and then they'd go home yeah mass employment becomes the gig economy yeah yeah um it's, but, it's yeah. probably gonna have another name it'll probably be called something else in 30 years time <laughs> whatever it'll be called it's yeah. some of it's not well it is capitalism but 
it's not at the same time if you know if you know what i mean it's mm. it's very different in the way that it treats its employees particularly yeah well i mean it's a gig economy yeah i mean this this is the thing is kind of um you know a, a lot of what we're talking about with these these uh, developments is disruption you know disruption of um uh politics uh disruption of traditional economic models um and you know that they're spoken about as good things, which they are to some extent. Um, but you can see that some of the disruption that's happening, particularly in technology employment, um, you know, the, the Uber situation springs to mind um, as one where people who previously were unionised and were able to control their, um, you know, had collective bargaining and were able to kind of. Uh, guarantee themselves a, a certain lev- uh, lifestyle are being replaced with basically um, temporary drones which will last about as long as it's necessary for them to get legal automated self-driving vehicles on the roads yeah. and then they'll be out of a job too if you imagine a future though say, say <laughs> so that's bleak isn't it <laughs> sorry <laughs> a lot of this is bleak to be honest if you imagine a future <clears throat> 40 years down the t- 40 years down the line Uber is the norm, so they're still paying drivers. But if you imagine there's loads of other companies doing a similar kind of thing in different industries, so there's maybe an Uber for accounting, there's maybe an Uber for delivery drivers, there's maybe an Uber for takeaways, you know, exactly, everything. It's called Uber Eats and they're already launching it. (laughs) You know what I mean, though. There there could be potentially the same model in a lot of other careers. So instead of thinking about Mm. a job in terms of you go for a job interview, you get a job, you get a salary, you have a contract, that doesn't exist anymore. All Mm. you do is you just drop in from job to job to job, whatever you feel like doing that day. Oh, I feel like being a taxi driver today. feels a bit like a video game. I feel like being a pizza delivery driver today. I feel like being an accountant today. Mm. You know, it's it's a very different way of looking at things. And yeah, you've lost a lot of those traditional worker rights, but maybe in 40 years' time, that's what we turn into. It's, it's a bit like a, a freelance economy. Everyone's freelance mm. in in whatever they choose to be their specialism or maybe a different million different things. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, there's nothing, there's no reason why that, model can't work you know and actually it's it's to some extent quite liberating this idea that you could be be master of your own destiny but yeah the flip side is that um if if that system is operated entirely by private enterprises um very powerful private enterprises who's basically shareholder shareholders of the uh, bottom line um it won't work for people it, it, it will be a race to the bottom. Yeah. Um, and in some of those industries, actually, I mean, you know, 40, 30, 40 years down the line, th- there'll be no such thing as a taxi driver. <laughs> um, you know, that's that's just a reality. There'll be no such thing as a taxi driver. There's probably a good chance there'll be no such thing as a, deliver- a takeaway delivery driver or indeed a van delivery driver. <clears throat> so... Um, you know the, the the idea of those being sort of part of this gig economy mix that they, they won't exist um and this is i suppose we've gone a very long way around saying this but but what i was kind of driving at really was that i think what we're actually seeing here are the first kind of pre-shocks as it were 
of what is effectively an economic earthquake in that we have to vastly change the way we think about how we approach the economy probably in the next 15 to 20 years um, or else things like this will continue to happen people like Donald Trump will continue to be um, you know because they'll stick their hands up and say I've got a quick fix for that we just build a wall and keep the Muslims out and um, and people will buy it because they're desperate for something so there really does need to be a long term and you know it's, it's not as if I'm saying anything particularly revolutionary here um, that there really does need to be some long term thought given to how we address problems that are coming at us fast now thanks to globalisation and technology yeah <laughs> that, yeah that's a big topic <laughs> and you obviously you've not got the answer have you You've not got that answer tucked in your front pocket. Mm. Well, <laughs> I could say yes and then run for president, couldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> All you've got to do is get a reality TV show, become fairly popular, a little bit racist, mm. um, yeah, and, and then you could become president. Oh, actually, you're not American, so you couldn't become president. Mm. Well, I mean, argue, arguably what Corbyn has done as well is kind of of, of a similar nature. You know, what you were saying about it being a very hopeful message. It is a hopeful message. There are questions about how realistic it is, and it is very simplistic in some respects. But it's better than the other approach. It's better than a simplistic <laughs> negative approach. Yeah, indeed. Rather than, yeah. Indeed. Um, and so uh, I'm sort of, you know, and I... It, it would if if we if we were contrasting this against um, a conservative government that was competent and sensible and um, thoughtful, then there would be no question. But we're not. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, Theresa May has been shown <clears throat> several times and in several situations, probably running to the hundreds, where she does not know what she's doing. She is not a leader. And it's been shown publicly and she continues to hold on to that job with every last morsel of her strength until, I don't know what's going to happen, until she gets kicked out or she dies or she's going to be there until she gets booted out by general election. And I think she, yeah. knows, I think she knows she's not good at her job, but this is it for her. She's got nowhere to go after this. Well, it's a very odd situation that, I mean, I, I, I find her impossible to read. Um because she's incompetent <laughs> I, d I don't know I mean I, I always hesitate to accuse somebody of, of just rank incompetence apart, apart from <laughs> Donald Trump obviously that's easy but um, I mean you know it does feel like she's kind of trapped in a death embrace with kind of um, basically the Brexit headbangers now um, I couldn't I have not been able to understand any of the decisions that she made in the first two weeks uh, after she took, got into the leadership. I couldn't make any sense of it at all. What, what she's doing is she's doing everything to keep hold of her power. Well, you see, I, I initially I thought she was just deliberately trying to provoke Parliament into blocking Brexit hmm. because everything she was doing was calculated to make Brexit as bad as possible. Well, she was a Remainer. Yeah, and so I was kind of looking at it and thinking, is, th is this an elaborate ruse mm. to basically get Parliament to kick it out? Um, and, you know, I mean, putting Boris and, you know, Liam Fox and people like that in, 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 in senior positions is kind of... 
why. Okay. I mean, you know, I could understand why you would put David Davis at the um, uh, DXU because um, he's the obvious choice. I mean, he was the he would have been the obvious choice to actually be Prime Minister at that point. Um, but be, Boris Johnson. Well, you know, I mean, Boris Boris Johnson is just basically dishonest. Why why you would put somebody like that in a position where they could hurt you, I don't know. Mm. And and make silly silly racist comments several times as mm. foreign secretary. Well, I mean, this is it. You know, the, the only explanation I had was that he'd put that she'd put him there to fail, mm. which is fine. But maybe it was just that she underestimated him, um, because he can fail <laughs> at the same time as making it look like other people are failing. Mm. Um, it's it's an amazing skill the way he's kind of you can see him laying right now he is laying the ground for him to be prime minister when Brexit goes wrong. Yeah, he doesn't want to be there when it happen when 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 it's actually being implemented because then he'll be blamed for it. But if he can waltz in after it's all on fire and say, well, you know, it would have been better if I'd have been in charge, but I'm here now and I'll I'll sort it all out. Um, and you know he basically you know, this is why Theresa May is trapped <laughs> yeah. because um, nobody wants the job um, you know if, if the government collapses you're going to struggle to find somebody who wants that job that's why everybody's talking about Jacobs Rees-Mogg because he's the only person who would actually take the job now because he's mad enough to think it'd work um, he's a dickhead <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it's terrifying looking at these people. They kind of they are just trapped in a death embrace, they, they and are. they're supposed to be in charge. There's there's no there's no way out. The only, and I don't say this because I because I voted Remain. I don't say this because of that at all. The only way out is to not do Brexit. It's been proven over and over. They, they've tried to do these talks. They've tried to work out how sensibly this could work. The only sensible solution is to just say, look, we, we can't do this. We haven't got the resources to do it. There's too many layers on top of it. This has been around for, what is it, 50 years? When, when did we first enter EU? 1950s or something? 19, yeah. Oh, it's 70s. So we've been in it for ages. We've got all these EU rules. It's just too complicated for an incompetent government and an incompetent public sector to organise. Mm. So let's just not do it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I, I mean, there are, there are some, some sort of, if you like, moderate leavers who have been talking about this Norway model or the um, Euro- European Economic Area model um, uh, of, of kind of basically staying with uh, either in the, a combination of the single market and the customs union or, you know, so on and so forth. You know, there are various different theories about uh, these kind of models where you basically step outside of the EU but stay in one of those other groups. Um, firstly, <laughs> it's debatable whether the EU would have actually seen that as desirable if it had been asked for. Um Although, you know, maybe they would. We, it's, it's, it's moot now, really, isn't it? Um, but the, the sense is that basically the government burnt that bridge within two weeks of Theresa May um, taking the job. And I don't understand why that was done. It just seems like, it, it, you know, to basically set yourself on a trajectory that is destined for failure from the outset. 
and she must have known it was destined for failure. She cannot possibly have believed the things she was saying. <laughs> I, I, w- I would love to sit down with her genuinely and actually ask her, you know, real questions about it and she, see if she did know what she was doing and actually hear her real motivations for all this kind of stuff that she's been doing and also the wider government because none of them... I'm, I'm amazed every couple of days when a new thing comes out about Brexit... I'm constantly amazed the decisions they're making over and over. There doesn't seem to be a positive decision that they've made yet. I I can't, off the top Mm. of my head, I can't remember one. I can't remember one where I think, yes, that is a good idea. That nothing, flatly nothing, (laughs) has been a good idea. Yeah. And and even today with the whole DUP thing and they they paid, the the Conservatives paid DUP a billion dollars quid to get on side and then they go they go to vote on brexit and they don't want to do it and that kind of stuff you'd think they would have discussed it first why have they not why did they not just have these discussions in private i'm sorry that just it does make me laugh that one why why have they not just said look are you going to agree to this because it looks really bad if you don't no we're not going to agree to it okay what can we do to make sure you agree to it Let's have those conversations. Why would it even get to the stage where they, there is public embarrassment of this whole situation happening? Why? Well, I mean, you know, you, I suppose you have to understand that the DUP basically want the impossible. I mean, that's, yeah. you know, that's that's the problem that the government have got is... Everybody does, though, don't they? Yeah, but they're, they're, theirs is a, a particularly concentrated form of impossible. <laughs> um, they want... Um, they want to be out of the single market and the customs union. Um, but they don't want a hard border yeah. with the South. And um, nor are they prepared to have any kind of notional border between the uh, between Northern Ireland and the mainland. Yeah. Um, and, you know, immediately being out of the single market and the customs union is completely impa- incompatible with not having a border. It's just, well, yeah. it's a total contradiction in terms. How, how do you signify where, when you step from one part of it to the other? How, well, is, how is that signified? I mean, it's basically, you know, I mean, it's been really funny actually today watching UKIP types saying, oh, well, you know, we'll not have a border in Ireland. We're not, we're not going to have a border. If, if the EU want one, they can pay for one. And it's, well, Guys, haven't you, for the past few years, been banging on about controlling immigration? How do you propose to do that if you don't have a border in Ireland? Because that will be the border with the EU. And if you don't police that, yes, smugglers will come in, yes, drug dealers will come in, um, and yes, immigrants will come in. And once they're in, they can then come across to the UK. So... You know, it, it's it, it's nonsense. <laughs> it is. It is complete nonsense. But it's not nonsense at the same time because these people mm. are deciding on our future, which is absolutely terrifying because these conversations that's happening, this news that comes out every day is real. Mm. This, this is deciding the future of the UK, the country that we are currently sat in, and these people seem to either not know what they're doing, don't care what they're doing, or it's an entirely big game. It's just a huge game to them. It's just a way to advance their political career and they just really don't care on, on what yeah. actually happens. Looking at you, Boris. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. it's terrifying. There is nobody in control of this very complicated procedure that needs to be managed carefully. 
Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is sort of David Davis, for example, I think actually is a genuinely principled politician who believes what he believes. Um, I don't I don't think he is. I, I've never got the sense that he's kind of dishonest or deceptive. Um, he might be mad, but he's he's not, you know, he's not dishonest. I've got to say, he still says some stupid things. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, there was, I think one of his former colleagues described him as being as thick as men's. <laughs> Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose to some extent I've got some respect for David Davis because you know he's just you know he believes this stuff. But um, it's interesting that he, he's starting to sound like he's looking for a way out. I mean, all of this business with threatening to resign over the Damien Green business, um, I, uh, there were one or two people who were speculating that the reason he was threatening to resign over a colleague being, you know sacked for watching porn at work um, was because it would be a good way for him to resign in principle and get out of a job that has turned out to be impossible uh, Yeah, uh, and Theresa May obviously believes that we should remain in the EU to some extent seems to have set out to make leaving the EU look like an absolute bin fire from the outset um, and in trying to satisfy the DUP basically which is going to be impossible whichever way you do it she's going to basically just going to have to toss them an idea and see what they do with it because there's there's literally nothing that she can say to them behind closed doors that they will actually say yes to mm. you know that's that's the reality of it is that the, 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 there is no proposition that she can make to them that will be compatible with what they want there's no, there's nothing that anybody can do, not even just for the DUP, but just for the whole Brexit thing. There's nothing mm. that it can be, it can be cleanly done. There's no way to do that. the The entire mm. thing can be summed up as impossible. It's either impossible or very difficult to do. It's not something that can be done in two years. It's not something that could probably be done in five or even ten. It's such a complicated, complicated multi level process that. Yeah, well, I mean, a sensible person would have, um, firstly, you know, before triggering Article 50, would have started talking to all the interested parties and uh, working out a strategy. So you'd have already talked to Northern Ireland before you even triggered Article 50 and have a plan for how you were going to do that. A sensible person would have said, right, OK, well, we're going to have to do immigration and customs control. How long is it going to take us to build those systems? Where's, where's the money going to come from? And possibly even started investing in those things before you triggered Article 50. Yeah. Or if you talk about ground zero of Brexit, when David Cameron <laughs> made this stupid decision, you just would have gone, no, this is ridiculous, and just never done it in the first place, mm. instead mm. of just trying to just give, you know, to curry favour because he suggested it in his manifesto. He said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do a referendum, no problem, boss. And he did it and it went the wrong way you would have just stopped he said no this before it got it to even that you just wouldn't have done it you wouldn't have offered it to the public and and then when it did get offered you wouldn't have gone through with it because you would have said as sensible politician this is not right for the country we're in a financial crisis this is only going to deepen the financial crisis and yeah you just not do it mm. but every everybody at every level of it is just out for themselves they're like, they're like the England football team. They're all playing their own individual game and they're not going to win the World Cup by playing their own individual games. 
Well, I think I think probably David Cameron will go down in history as probably one of the worst um, prime ministers the country's ever had, um, because you know the, the the extent of the damage that's been achieved in in basically seven years, well six years actually, um, is is extraordinary. But um, the, the the interesting thing is that um, I, I don't necessarily have any objection with the idea of you know we want to have another EU referendum the timing is terrible because if you subjected the country to austerity for a decade you can't possibly expect them then to listen to you when you say well staying in this arrangement is good for our economy yeah let's just carry on with that's, the way that it's always been that's not a good argument you know oh you know the economy will be great if we carry on with this um and and secondly um to have then uh, it's the kind of the mandate that that it was given by that referendum was inescapable. That's the problem. Um, is is there were more people have turned out for that than have turned out for a general election for some time. Yeah. So how you as um, even a democratically elected MP stand up and say, well, you know, my mandate is more important than this one. It's, it's very difficult to do that. But the business of not triggering Article 50 immediately and starting to make those plans would have given you the opportunity to take some of the heat out of that situation rather than just basically pouring petrol on it, which is what Theresa May did. I, I actually put on Twitter, Brexit's not going to get called. That, that was Article 50 is not mm. going to get triggered. I presumed because it was being left left for so long relatively to the re- referendum. Yeah, you weren't alone. I thought, this is it. They, you know, mm. they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it because they've realised this is a really bad decision. But then loads of politicians started coming out saying, well, we've got to do it because the public demanded it. Well, no. yeah, I mean, I, I actually sent, that was when I sent my Labour membership card back, was when Jeremy Corbyn was saying that, you know, Article, tri- Article 50 should be triggered now. But he were only doing it to get more favour with the public. That was it. Mm. He's, he's been a Eurosceptic for a very long time, as, as Jeremy Corbyn. I think he actually meant it. Mm. <laughs> <That's>, well, <he's laughs> that of, was the problem. He is, he's of that age range, mm. you know, that mm. slightly racist age range <laughs> that remember before remember before the EU and yeah. remember good times and golden ages. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the thing: is not not everybody's motivation for voting for that was was racist. I mean, you know, no, absolutely this, not. Um, you know, there was this body of kind of Lexit, um opinion that said that um, continues to say that the EU is an essentially neoliberal capitalist organisation, and we will never have proper socialism in the UK until we're free of it. Um, which is an interesting viewpoint. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, yeah. it's what everybody always says. There is problems with the EU. Yes, that cannot be denied. There's problems, but it's better to be part of it than it is to be removed from it. Because when we become removed from it, we are outcasts that cannot influence anything that's inside of it. And also, it makes us a tiny country in the middle of nowhere again. We, we know we at the minute we are part of a bigger organization of France, Germany, and every other EU member. Once we leave that, we are a tiny country in the middle of nowhere with seventy odd thousand, uh, seventy odd million people that just do not matter. 
anymore. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's three really interesting facts on this. I mean, you know, I, I buy this idea that you know we're not as small as as as, as sometimes we think of ourselves. You know, we we always have punched above our weight, um, and we were up until the Brexit vote the fifth biggest economy. Um, so you know, I mean, fine, we can have a bit of belief in ourselves, but you know, the world has changed. Um, there are three things that I think should be really telling. Um, the most important one is what happened today, which was basically that the Republic of Ireland, whose economy has struggled for ever since the global crash, was basically able to push Britain around today mm. because it's got the EU behind it. Yeah. Um, and they were basically able to say, you know, this deal will not be acceptable unless we've got a decent solution on the border. Secondly was when um, Donald uh, America first, Donald Trump's America first, um, slapped 220% tariffs on Bombardia, Northern Ireland, um, over a dispute over the um, funding of aircraft. Now that immediately makes you think, well, you know, we could be in trouble here if we're talking about having a deal with America. Uh, but it's actually the EU that are now going into bat with us against the US on that topic. And thirdly, is the question of Russian interference in Brexit. If Putin thinks it's in his interests for the EU to fall apart, we ought to ask ourselves very serious questions about whether it's a good idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, those things, those things, from my point of view, are enough to make me think, well, you know, for all that I think Britain's great, I think it's greater when it's part of the EU. Yeah, it is, absolutely, because, yeah, we'll, we will find ourselves in that situation when we leave the EU, where we're getting pushed around, like you just said with the example of Ireland, we'll get pushed around by everybody because we don't have the backing. And the other, the other thing that really annoys me that people don't seem to get is that we, we, you know, we've, we're part of the EU, we've got all these EU laws and regulations and things like that, and they're, they're good because they keep everything the same across the entire of EU, whether you agree with that or not, it's another, a different matter. But once we leave the EU, we're still going to have to maintain a lot of those laws because at laws and regulations, if we want to continue trading with countries that are inside the EU. Mm. So all those arguments about we'll have less, we'll have less immigrants, we'll have less regulation from EU and Brussels, we'll have less of this and less of that, we'll have more of it, or, well, not more of it, we'll have the same amount of it, but we won't be able to influence any of it because we won't be part of the EU. So if we if we do literally want to stay as a tiny island and not trade with anybody and not speak to anybody outside of England, yes, we can have it, but that's not going to be the case. We need to continue countries, uh, people in England need to continue trading with France and Germany and mm. all these other countries. And the only way we do that is by sticking to the EU rules that we reportedly want to become mm. not part of anymore. So yeah. it, it's, a, it's a lose-lose situation. Well, I mean, you know, I, 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 I mean, I don't, in reality is I don't know very many people who voted for Brexit and um, those that I do know are kind of on the exit side of things where you know the argument's well understood but when when it comes to kind of this business of oh you know we'll have less regulation I always want to ask people well which regulations is it that you want rid of you know is it is it kind of the working time directive and you know your, your rules on how much overtime 
um, you know, and, and what you have to be paid and, you know, your holidays and so forth, um, your maternity leave. Is it, um, is it product standards? Is it the right to take back goods with no questions asked for after 14 days or have an up to two year warranty on electronics, but mandatory uh, warranty on electronics? Um, you know, which bit of regulation is it that that bothers you? The truth is, it's the regulation that the Daily Mail told them to be bothered about. Mm. That is the truth. It's, Bendy bananas. Yeah. <laughs> it's either yeah. the stupid regulations that make no difference to anybody's lives, or it's immigration. The mm. entire Brexit campaign was run on immigration and the NHS, two things that the Brexit... Well, that Brexit will not be able to influence in the slightest and that is where the entire campaign fell down and people and I've said this on other podcasts people should be brought to justice for the lies and the the propaganda that they spread during that campaign because people voted to leave the EU on the wrong things that were never ever going to happen that would never ever even be possible even in a in a perfect situation and people Honestly, people honestly voted for that because a politician was telling them, well, if we leave the EU, we can give £350 million a week back to the NHS. They were told that and they believed it. And if I would have believed that, I would have gone, hmm, yes, it makes sense. It makes sense to leave the EU. And then for the day that the referendum gets announced... Nigel Farage goes on television Well I wouldn't have made that promise myself Yeah, he goes on television and he distances himself from all those stupid things he was saying, Boris Johnson does exactly the same thing and suddenly we're back to square one mm. but we, we've got this thing hanging behind us now where we've got to leave the EU mm. based mm. on things that were said that were never going to become true mm. so mm. The, the whole entire thing is a complete and utter shitstorm that's developed from something that doesn't even exist and never existed and we're, we're quick to forget that now because we're mm. in this situation where we've we've got to leave the eu because the process has begun it's the will of the people it's, it's the will of 51 percent of the people that's that's of the really, people yeah. that voted as well by yeah, the way yeah. of the people that voted it's roughly it's kind of roughly 36 percent of the electorate i think something like that um uh, but what's that, yeah, I mean, the, the problem is because it's quite, it is quite a powerful mandate, even though the, the majority was so poor. It is quite a powerful mandate and it's very difficult for MPs to escape it, I think. Um, and this is why there's been a lot of energy around this idea of a second referendum, because obviously, um, if you want to reverse a mandate like that, that will be one of the mechanisms by which you do it. I think people are sceptical because it's debatable whether people have really changed their minds yet. You know, voters have really changed their minds yet. And it might be that two years isn't long enough to convince them. And it could be that if you had a second re referendum, you'd get almost the same result. Mm. Um, well, I, I agree with democracy. I agree <laughs> that we should vote for the politicians that are put into power. And the way that we do it at the minute is not ideal, you know, but it's what we're stuck with. I don't necessarily agree with the fact that we was consulted on a very technical, complicated thing that the politicians should have chose, who are apparently the experts 
on this kind of thing. This decision is way too technical and complicated for the regular Joe, even you or I, to fully understand the issues of what this really means to Britain. That is a decision that the government should have been making. It's not something that should have been brought to the public. And then, to make it even worse, it's not something that should have been brought to the public on false pretense. So Mm -hmm. there's there's two levels to this. And, yeah, I, I voted to remain because I had the vote. But even at that point, I didn't know if that was the correct decision. It was morally the correct decision for me. But I didn't have all the facts. I tried. I tried to learn as much as I possibly could. But the majority of other people that were voting won't have done that. The majority of other people would have voted the way that they've voted for a very long time. And it it was very, very difficult to find any facts, to find any concrete evidence of what would happen to Britain if we left the EU. It's not a decision that should have been taken so lightly, to be Mm. honest. And Mm. I... And it should have been left to the experts. And then, for them, and I still remember it now, for them to say, during the whole campaign, the rhetoric was, we're sick of experts. That was the, you know, the... the, the wow, le- Michael Gove's, we're sick of yeah, experts. That the, was rather wonderful. The whole leavers thing, we, we're mm. sick of experts. What do you even mean? The experts are the only people that need to be consulted on this situation. And all of the experts were telling you that this should not happen mm. every single one of them in the press was saying that yeah well, i mean it's another it's another example of populism and it's, it's it's i think it's it's a bit um tragic that the you know somebody who like michael gove who i would have thought would consider himself to be a serious politician would be indulging in that kind of populism um you know to say yeah you know we don't we don't need to listen to anybody we just need to you know carry on waving our flags and angrily shouting um it it was an absurd thing to say really um but it is an example of how um how 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 badly we've drifted how far we've drifted from kind of thoughtful politics and this is the sort of decision that does need to be taken coldly and analytically absolutely which is why you shouldn't do it while you're still digging yourself out of a massive global economic crash this is the thing that should have been a, a year, two-year-long report written on by several experts, international experts. They understood the entire thing that were completely separate from any party. Nobody would have read them. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. With an executive um, summary that was only a page long at the end of it, obviously. Well, I mean, that's the problem. You know, David Cameron put out the executive summary, but, I mean, everybody detested David Cameron by then. So, I mean, you know, him putting his name on the bottom of something like that was like Tony Blair putting their name on the bottom of it. It was it was, it was, was worse than sabotage, really. Mm. Um, when, you, when you actually trace back Brexit the whole way, though, it actually comes back to Nigel Farage. You know, he started this whole movement of taking back Britain and UK Independence Party. He started that whole rhetoric. David Cameron got scared of the rise of UKIP, so he decided to start implementing some of their policies. Mm. And now we find us on the day where the only real winner is Nigel Farage. He He's mm. completed his career goal. Yeah, gets to keep his pension and go and work for Donald Trump. Isn't yeah. that great? Um, still be an MEP. Keep his EU pension. <laughs> it's just 
It's just but, ridiculous. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was understandable, really, in 2010 that politicians like David Cameron were frightened of the hard right. Um, any sensible politician after an economic crash like that should be frightened of the hard right. How do you react to it? How do you contain it? Um, how do you deal with that kind of nationalism and that sort of, you know, racism and xenophobia that does happen after something like that? Um, and I don't... I, I, I have no criticism of any politician who attempted to speak to those people because you have to do it. You can't just ignore them. They're not going to go away. That's why we're where we are now, because <laughs> they've been ignored. Um, but... Um, yeah, I mean, the, the the EU referendum, I mean, it, it should have been obvious really to, as well, to any politician that calling that referendum at that point was going to be a huge roll of the dice. Um, and there's one thing that was sort of characteristic of all of David Cameron's period in office was that there was this sense that he just felt like he deserved to be there. I mean, he didn't really campaign in 2015 until the last minute. You know, as far as he was concerned, he, he was going to win. He just deserved the job. He was he, he was going to be fine. He was the um, only real choice, mm. to be honest. <laughs> well, this is the, well. I mean, this is you know. You look back at that tweet that he posted before the last election, where he says um, Britain faces um, a, a, a hard choice, a simple choice. Um, it's either um, chaos with Ed Miliband or strong and stable government with with me. Mm. How ironic has that turned out to be? He lasted a year after that, having basically thrown Sterling down a cliff and taken the country out of the EU and got an MP killed. Mm, yeah. Um, now, yeah, I mean, I think, again, well, obviously I'm not blaming him for that, but, you know, the, the hostile atmosphere of, of the, the Brexit campaign was obviously um, contributory. And... Ha he he ought to have had the sense to see that calling that that EU referendum there was going to be a huge roll of the dice, but it feels like he just kind of, you know, again, he, he sort of phoned it in, that campaign. I mean, issuing a leaflet in the government's name that sets out a position when the government is hated. And also meant to be impartial on things like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, and I mean, you know, this idea, telling people about the huge economic benefits of the EU and how bad it would be if we leave, doesn't really ring true with somebody who's kind of eating cold beans out of a tin because they can't switch the heating on. And hates the government. Mm. So, um, yeah, I mean, to be fair, actually, um, there were efforts made to get um, the Labour leadership involved at that point, but... Um, it didn't really happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we just find ourselves in a very strange situation. It, mm. it feels... It does feel dark in some senses. And I don't... Right now, I can't see how we could ever complete Brexit. I don't see how we could ever leave the EU. And I still don't see a full picture of that. And I say that as someone who's pretty interested in politics. Mm. And I would have thought that the car market for making people understand would be people like me and people like you there should be press out there and information out there right now explaining how this is actually going to happen to calm the markets and to calm mm. the public perception but none of that's happening because I, I genuinely do not think that they know 
what's going to happen because this is this process is just beyond them it's mm. it's beyond it's beyond any collection of human beings <laughs> to organize such a, well clearly it isn't because the eu have obviously managed a very good job of negotiating their position and sticking to it um it's just that we didn't have a position that's the problem um i just imagine though that they're they're in those negotiations and it's probably just like negotiating with a two-year-old it's probably incredibly easy for eu to negotiate at this point because there's nothing that they need they 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 know that we're going to leave they don't care what happens really obviously they they, we've been yeah we've been an eu member for a very long time so there might be some sentimental value but it will be immensely expensive for the eu as well will this i mean you know that's the point is everybody gets hurt by something like this Um, yeah they do but conservatives and theresa may and david davis are all sticking a middle middle finger up at at the eu at every single possible every single opportunity it must be quite difficult to stay <laughs> positive and yeah. want, wanting to keep that person inside the EU. It's, it's a bit like if you get a bad client, isn't it? You, you know, you get a bad client, they're really nasty to you. You don't want to keep them. You, you, you don't really care if they leave you because they're, they're always shouting at you. And I think that the EU, unfortunately, and that whole negotiating team are getting a bit like that with, with Britain, particularly mm. Theresa May and conservative fools that they keep sending over there to try and organise this stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it's kind of interesting that um, we've we've got this situation where uh, um, we've got somebody who's basically principled about what he wants. You know, he's he's, he's obviously had this idea in his, his heart for years, as does David Davis, of leaving the EU. So he must go in there with genuine and sincere intent of achieving his objectives and basically be, be met by a brick wall. Well, which essentially says, well, you know, what you're asking for is impossible. Mm. You're not having it. Um, and, you know, that's pretty much, <laughs> I imagine, the extent of the... I mean, and I think this is why Theresa May is also kind of en- engaged in this process, is that kind of, it's almost as if, you know, these speeches that periodically appear are kind of there basically to lubricate the process and unstick when things have got bogged down, because um, both sides of the discussion... Um, are both sincere and intransigent and incompatible, and they, they, you know there's there's no way of of getting around it. Um, but you know, going back to what I was saying about the the quick change in Jeremy Corbyn's fortunes after that election was called, we've got another year of this, and a lot could change. Oh yeah, a lot could change. Um, he has been quite quiet though lately, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah, no, I, I meant in terms of what happens with the Brexit situation yeah. is that um, I think that could I, that could definitely change drastically in th- the next six to nine months. I think there's a lot of surprises mm. left. Mm. And I think right now we're at the easiest stage of the Brexit negotiations. Mm. There's a lot more that's going to happen that could turn out to be incredibly positive. And if everything happens how I expect what's going to happen in America... If Trump suddenly becomes um, a figure of hatred, or he potentially suddenly, <laughs> you know what I mean. If, if everybody suddenly realised that Trump is corrupt and he mm. gets struck from his American presidency, that could change things over here quite a lot. And mm. 
it, it's going to be really interesting. It's like a soap opera, politics right now. You know, anybody who says politics is boring is, is, is not. Right now, it's not yeah, boring. I would say more like a sitcom. <laughs> it's a really long running sitcom. It's just the thick of it. And it, right now, it's just the thick of it. The thick of it is just. Yeah. It just feels so real. I'm watching the thick of it again. I've watched it so many times. It's brilliant. <laughs> I just wish they'd make a, a, a Brexit series, mm. a Brexit special, because it'd just relieve a lot of a lot of this pressure right now. And I thought, I thought it was really interesting that uh, Armando Iannucci has instead decided to make a film of Russian history. <laughs> <laughs> Is he trying to tell us something? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where he stars Trump in it, probably. Uh. But, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the, uh, the, the, I, I mean, I, I think that firstly, there's a good, there's, there's several situ- places we could end up. One of which is that we, um, we do end up falling back to that, um, European economic area situation. Um, I mean, that would actually be the most compatible with everybody's desired outcomes. Now, it's not ideal. But, um, you know, once you've exhausted all the possibilities, once you've basically, um, you know, you've got um, Arlene Foster basically demanding the impossible and unable to move, you know, okay, well, basically, you know, if you want a a porous border with the Republic and you don't want uh, conditions different to that um, in, in England, then the way to do that is we all go into the EAA. It's the only way to EEA. It's the only way to do that. So you know, let's do something around that. And you know, there'd be there'd be if if we're nine months down the the line, and basically Arlene Foster is still nailed to the ground, refusing to move. <laughs> that will be the only option. Yeah. You know, well, it's either that or basically, well, you know, the government collapses. Or they extend the Brexit <laughs> di- deadline. Yeah. They can't extend Article 50, but, well, they try. I guess it's going to end up getting extended. There's no way this is going to be finished in two years. Well, it's, I mean, that's a legal question, though. I mean, you would have to ask the... Uh, I mean, um, the EU have basically said that um, they, they, they don't essentially want to create a situation where we've got an indefinite extension. Um, and why would they want to create that? Yeah. Um, and and nor can we withdraw Article Fifty and then just send it again when we're ready. You know, it has to be a sincere withdrawal. So so you know, this business of having this um, runoff period, this um, this bridge to nowhere after Article Fifty of you know two years or what have you, um, that doesn't actually put us in a stronger position because. There's either a deal done by March or there isn't, um, and there's there's probably very little we can do to escape that deadline. There's just going to be every, everybody <laughs> frantically trying to put some kind of thing mm-hmm. together in January, yeah. or or even five days before end of March, and it, yeah. it's, there's just going to be it's going to be pandemonium at that point. Well, I mean, th- this business of legislating to fix the date and time of Brexit. Um, that that was pushed through at the insistence of the government as part of the repeal bill um, was described by several commentators I read as the equivalent of chaining people to the bomb um, just to prove that we can defuse it in time. You know, it, it gains you nothing. 
you know and it just basically i mean to be fair i think you know in the event that things go pear-shaped i think that legislation will be utterly meaningless anyway um but nonetheless <laughs> um it it's sort of an indicative of kind of the the sort of utter mindlessness of the way the process is being managed at the moment that it's kind of like you know in the face of all evidence no we're going to do this it'll be fine um because uh, because experts don't matter (laughs) don't listen to the expert well i mean there's the the, there's the 58 reports isn't there the alleged 58 reports of uh, the economic impact reports that um have been done on various subjects is that the ones that the watch share yeah 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 um, which David Davis has at various different times denied the existence of <laughs> or said that they do have them but they can't show us. Um, I'm impressed they've not been leaked, actually. <laughs> or that they're not on WikiLeaks because... Oh, know. well, they wouldn't be on WikiLeaks, would they? Where would they be then? <laughs> well, that's, um, you know... <laughs> Who's going to pay to hack those out of the uh, the government to go on WikiLeaks? It's certainly not Putin. Um, but uh, no, I mean, I, yeah, you've, you're right. It is surprising. I mean, possibly they don't exist, or they're written on the back of a postage stamp, or who knows. Or I'm surprised they've not been yeah. left on a train, or you know, yeah. left in Costa or somewhere like that. And oh they, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, DXU were working out of a coffee shop for ages, weren't they? So I mean, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's where you'd expect to find them. When you really want oh. some incompetence like that, when yeah. you when you want to find out something interesting, <laughs> incompetence doesn't seem to exist. Yeah, well, you, see, you know, these are economic reports. They've actually been prepared by sort of serious people. Professionals. Yeah. Um, it's possible that they've not even let David Davis see them. Probably, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, I mean... Um, so, so, you know, there, there has been some serious thought gone into this, but it's not in evidence on the front lines and I'm not quite sure why I, I, I'm genuinely bemused by it all I, I can't I can't understand it I can't fathom it yeah I, yeah I know I'm going to move on to something else because yes, we talk about Brexit for ages banging on about that for a long time yeah it's all interesting I've, I've got a couple of other very yeah. jolly jolly topics here something that I've not really touched upon is the something that I, I saw in the news today which was the release that MI5 may have been able to stop the Manchester attacks. So there's a wider thing to this, terrorism, basically. You know, the, the rise of quote-unquote terrorism, whatever you want to call it. Um, this year, there's been way more attacks than there ever has been, particularly in Britain. Um, they seem to happen every couple of weeks, and in fact, they probably have happened nearly every couple of weeks, at least every month or every two months. And it's this this year that people are going to remember that for, I think. It's not a jolly topic, but mm. ter- terrorism in that particular form has become a very big topic for people to talk about. But nothing seems to be done about it. Nothing, not, no, no new security measures seem to have come out or no member of politicians have said anything other than hopes and prayers mm. and I remember Jonathan Pye doing a video about it a couple of weeks back about hopes and prayers mm. and how the pointless hopes and prayers are pointless. He was particularly talking about America mm. and how they, they've just got massacres every week, which is also, you know, it's terrorism, but it's not the form of terrorism that we've become traditionally 
that that people traditionally think of terrorism now since nine eleven that they've got to be brown with a beard for yeah. it to be terrorism. Yeah. Well, I mean, I t- I, there's a few observations on that. Um, firstly, I mean, I, I've seen that Jonathan Pye video, and I think the important thing was that the observation there was that there is empirically something that you can do to prevent these kind of mass shootings. Mm-hmm. You know, there are things that that we've seen in other countries around regulating the way guns are, uh, are owned and operated, um, which will help to reduce these kind of things. So there's something you can definitely do about that. Whereas what we're facing in Europe with, with terrorism is, I think to some extent, what's happening recently is an indication that uh, Daesh are losing in Syria. You know, they're, it's it's falling apart for them. Um, and now, instead of people flying out to Syria um, to go and fight in, in this um, this bloody conflict... Um, they're being encouraged to stay at home and blow themselves up or buy some cutlery and hire a van, you know. But, you know, this is the thing is, when we get it into perspective, when when your enemy has reached the stage where they're having to go to Avis and then buy a kitchen knife in order to inflict any harm, then you know you've beaten them. But because it's on British soil mm. and because it's happening every couple of months, it seems much worse than what it actually is. Yeah. And even if I'm going to say they're only, they're only killing a couple of people each time, because it's on home soil and because you see it a lot on the news, it seems worse than it ever has been when it actually, you're probably right. It, it, you well, know. that's the, you know, and that's the purpose of terrorism. That's why you do it in that fashion, mm. because you want the coverage. You want people to be terrified. Um, but, you know, I mean, in reality, um, you know, more people are killed crossing the road every day than are killed by terrorists. And we have to get it into perspective is that, you know, for all that it's horrific, um, it's intended to be horrific. Yeah. That's what they're trying to do. They, they want to terrify people. And the news never acknowledges that. Mm. It just provides rolling coverage. Guardian does a live blog on it for days. Yeah. And no. they release all the names of everybody. They 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 give them everything that they want, and it happens the same with serial killers or yeah. any high profile Pixel, pixelated photographs of their face, which they're they're told time and time again, don't broadcast the killer's face. Yeah, and, and they do it every time. Not nor the name, nor mm. anything about them. Don't even give them coverage of it. Mm. Just do none of that. And if you don't do any of that, then it quickly fizzles out because a lot of these people. Are only, well, terrorism and serial killers are only doing it for press because that is the thing that fuels it in the first place. Mm. And but it must be difficult as a news organisation to say that because everybody else will just publish it if you don't. Yeah, I mean the big problem for um, sort of, I suppose the left and liberal press is that if they don't cover it in at least some level of garishness, then the hard right press will accuse them of covering it up. You know, I mean, you, you sort of Paul Joseph Watson's and Daily Mail's and uh, Donald Trump's and Jada Franson's of this world are basically doing Daesh's job for for them because they're, every time something like this happens, it's like, oh, it's the end of the world, we're being invaded, um, which is precisely what Daesh want. You know, they're, they're basically the chicken licking, running around saying... You know, the sky is falling. And, um, 
it's, it's very difficult in that kind of climate to maintain, as another news outlet, a level of balance and a level of proportion to it, uh, particularly when, you know, the, the public reaction to these things immediately is revulsion. So you want, you want it to be covered. I thought the way the BBC covered the Manchester business was exemplary. Um, I mean, admittedly, they, they, they did start off with rolling coverage. Um, but I think they realised fairly quickly that that was problematic and, and they, they pulled back on that. Um, and then we had a lot of coverage about people who helped and the ambulances and the taxi drivers. And then we, we had the coverage about the concert that happened and, and they gave lots of space to the Ariana Grande concert. Um, and I think that was so much, so much, that's what we should be doing. Yeah, absolutely. But you know. in contrast, The Guardian, only a couple of weeks ago, you know, when the two people was having a fight in that underground station in, in London. I don't know if you saw oh, yeah, it. yeah, yeah, the Oxford, yeah. Yeah, everybody, gunshots heard, two gunshots fired. That was The Guardian's head, headline straight away. They had a live blog up immediately, two yeah. shots fired. They ran that live blog for about an hour or so. I was getting updates on it on my phone every 10 minutes. An hour later, two people having a fight. That's, yeah. all, that's all it was. And that, the, the whole reason, <laughs> it's ironic really, the whole reason that that turned into what it was is because The Guardian wanted to cover it. It yeah. became mass hysteria because the press was covering it and because previously they've covered it in ways like that, that now we've got a scared public, particularly scared London, because there's been so many attacks in London this year. Mm. They've got a scared London because people like The Guardian live blog it and to an extent BBC as well Twitter's really good for this or really bad for it mm. for kind of you know within within seconds there are speculations about you know the number of people dead people deciding um, who did it before there's even been any evidence yeah. you know yeah. we've had you know um, mass the 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 um, we've had mass shootings in the states acute, um, blamed on Daesh before uh, and, and and then it's just turned out to be some <laughs> random lunatic, mm. um, and uh, I, I, what I do now actually, if there's been a major incident like this, is I tend to just put social media away for an hour. Yeah, I do because it it, it doesn't shed any light. It's it's all just hate. It's also incredibly negative. Mm. Unfortunately, this year I think more than ever the news and the press has been incredibly negative because of everything that's been happening. There's mm -hmm. other, other than the BBC coverage, which I agree with you was good. Other than that, there's not really been that many positives. We've seen a lot of terrorist attacks. There's been an elevated amount of uh, gun, gun massacres in America. Donald Trump is always in the news every single day, even in Britain. Yeah. And we've got Theresa May and Brexit and all that kind of stuff. And all that stuff dominates the headlines every single day and in fact I bet if I look at G The Guardian and I actually even though I bash The Guardian it's the one that I usually look at still <laughs> um, I bet if I look there now they've they've got everything that we've been talking you about metropolitan liberal elitist you <laughs> yeah yeah there, there, there we look Some somebody's dead Manchester attack Brexit uh, yeah but I mean you know papers don't report good news they never have, really. <laughs> no, I, I agree, but 
This this year, more than ever, I've been not looking at the news. Oh, there you are. What I was saying earlier. David Davis, Northern Ireland plan would apply to whole UK. Yeah, the thing that... It, the the, the EEA solution. There yeah. you are. Anyway, sorry. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, more than ever this year, I haven't been looking at the news because it's been so so negative and it, it does affect you. It comes back to that thing I was saying earlier. Even mm-hmm. if you think you're not affected by ads, you are affected by ads. Yeah. And if the majority of the news is negative, it's, you know, it's completely negative on you as well. And it actually mm-hmm. wears you down and you, you worry about this kind of stuff. And, and a lot of it's just bluster, like you said. Yeah, I mean, I've switched off from social media a couple of times recently. Um, uh, not for massive, massively long periods of time. I mean, I know some people take kind of months off and stuff. Um, but I did recently realise that it was starting to affect my state of mind and uh, <laughs> decided to withdraw for a few weeks. Um, and I did feel a lot better for it um, because if, you, if you're on there constantly trying to fight the good fight or what you perceive to be the good fight, um, you basically end up exposing yourself to some of the worst people in the world on a daily basis. And that does eventually grind you down um well that there's a good thing to talk about there actually because i wrote it down you mentioned free (laughs) free speech online and i remind and i asked you to remind me about paul chambers oh yes the whole the whole twitter what year was that now now then 2012 i I was gonna say 2012 i I think so i mean I'd, i'd have to look up the blogs and so forth but it's been a long time it has been a long time um and that was kind of that was sort of really in the infancy of Twitter, really. It was still when it was quite a uh, sort of... I mean, it was on the up, but it was kind of um, still a bit of a fringe medium, really. And there'll be people um, who don't even rem- remember that Paul Chambers situation, so right. it's probably worth explaining what it is. Okay, then. <laughs> Here goes the brief recap. Um, so, yes, at that time, um, Paul was um, talking to a girl who lived in Northern Ireland um, who was later to become his girlfriend and they were kind of, you know, they, they were sort of um, building a relationship via social media, basically. Um, and he'd made an arrangement to go out and see her um, and fly out of uh, Robin Hood Airport in Doncaster. Um, and it was around the time... Um, it was it was winter time, and it was, it was when it was kind of snowing very heavily. Um... Belfast Airport closes because of snow fairly frequently because it's it's only a little airport um, and uh, Robin Hood Airport is very similar and so there were sort of daily updates on whether the airports were open and there'd been some banter about you know obviously he's going to visit Northern Ireland so they'd, they'd been bantering you know about sort of terrorism jokes basically um, and uh, on the day of the airport, uh, the day he was due to fly, the airport was closed. Robin Hood Airport was closed, and he he posted a single tweet: "Crap, Robin Hood Airport is um, closed." Um, I've got the exact tweet here. Yeah, you've got. I think it's, you've got an hour and a bit. Is it something like that? Crap, Robin Hood Airport is closed. You've got a week and a bit to get your shit together. Mm. Otherwise, I'm blowing the airport sky high. Yes. <laughs> Um, and it was surrounded. I think there's three exclamation marks. Two exclamation marks. Yeah. Yep. And the word crap in the tweet. Now, I think to anybody that's fairly obviously comical hyperbole. Um, 
the problem was that because of the atmosphere around terrorism, um, well, it was basically it was seen by an off-duty airport manager from Robin Hood Airport um, who, for whatever reason, was searching his airport on Twitter and found this tweet. And unfortunately, he felt obliged by uh, counter-terrorism guidelines to report that to the airport and the airport security, who in turn looked at it and said, well, yeah, it's probably nonsense, but, you know, our job is to report this to the counter-terrorism police. So they did that, and they in turn looked at it and said, uh, well, it's probably nothing, but we should go arrest him. And so off they went and arrested him. And he was subsequently charged with um, posting a... um, menacing communication um, under section 127 of the Communications Act. Um, And he was really the first instance of Twitter, someone on Twitter saying something that got arrested for it. He he wasn't the absolute first, but um, it was the the most... most high profile. Yeah, it was the most high profile. It was the most obviously egregious because obviously, you know, he's he's pulled away and charged with a communications offence. Um... And, you know, he's got to explain to um, his boss and all the rest of it why he's um, having to go to court to undergo these criminal proceedings. Um, And his solicitor actually advised him to plead guilty, just looked at the law and said, well, you know, it's a a strict liability offence, you're going to have to uh, plead guilty to this offence, which he duly did and was convicted, at which point he lost his job. Um... So, you know, and all of this was (laughs) over something which was quite obviously a joke and pretty much everybody involved understood it was a joke. And it's it's kind of a Kafkaesque situation where everybody in the process is almost just going, well, yeah, um, I'll I'll pass it to somebody else. Somebody else will deal with it. And he ends up with a criminal conviction as a result. Um, And there were basically, there there was then an appeal which... um, and I was there for the appeal, I was present for the appeal when the magistrate was um, making her judgment and slapping additional fines and punishments on him whilst upholding the conviction. And it was pretty clear that she didn't even understand the medium of Twitter. Yeah. Um, Am I right in saying there was there was something about um, free speech and basically... If he would have said that in, you know, in a town somewhere or whatever, if he would have spoken those words, that would have been fine because it's free speech. But he got charged because they deemed Twitter being um, an actual medium of communication and you're not allowed to send things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of the discussion was really around this piece of law, which was a piece of um, communications law, which was designed originally to effectively police um, telephone communication systems. Uh, it, it was referred. It, it refers to a public electronic communications network, um, and there was much debate about whether Twitter was a public electronic communications network, and so forth. Um, all of it very technical, and you know, largely not really agreed either way. But the problem was that that piece of law was drafted very loosely, and it was open to a massive amount of interpretation. There were a lot of prosecutions under that piece of legislation. Um, still are actually, but. Um, what really changed the game, though, was um, it went as far as as the High Court, um, um, and it was seen in front of uh, the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales. Can you believe this? 
we got to the point where we had an appeal with um, the Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales um, presiding over uh, and, and, and making judgment over the whole affair uh, with in the presence of Stephen Fry and Graham Linehan and uh, Al Murray. <laughs> <laughs> Um, who, who had all become very interested in the case and were supporting and providing funds and all the rest of it because the the legal costs were five figures by this point. Stephen, um, Stephen Fry paid his legal costs, didn't he? He, he made contributions. I, th- I, I He certainly paid one. Yeah. I mean, there were people working pro bono as well, so there was, you know, there was a lot involved. But, um, yes... Um, but but once at that point the conviction was overturned. But the point was that they, um, and this is where it comes back to relevance politics in a minute. Mm. Um, the um, the the Crown Prosecution Service had kept on pressing the case all the way up to this final hearing. They'd kept on presenting a case, um, even though. You know, it would have been as easy as anything for them to just roll over and say, we got it wrong. They kept pushing it. Um, and after this judgment was had, uh, handed down, the uh, the Director of Public Prosecutions, who is in charge of the CPS, said, we're going to have to draft some rules for this, um, guidelines on prosecution. And, and he duly did. Um, do you know who that Director of Public Prosecutions was? No. Keir Starmer. <laughs> All right. The, the current uh, shadow <laughs> Brexit secretary, um, but yes. So, so for a long time, Keir Starmer was my worst enemy. <laughs> um, but um, for whatever reason, actually, those rules that were then drafted that said, you know, the threshold for prosecuting for somebody for these kind of offences needs to be very high. We can't just go around prosecuting people for. Well, I mean, we had stuff like people burning a poppy. On, and photographing it, um, which is ironic actually, because after the first Twitter joke trial, it was actually on Poppy Day, and I'd torn up my poppy and photographed it and posted it to Twitter. <laughs> um, and then a few weeks later, I'm writing about somebody who was prosecuted for burning one. Yeah. Um, but yes, it, it did. It, it, that's that's kind of chilled the the prosecutions, but not completely. They are still happening. And that's when you kind of first got into all this stuff isn't it <laughs> that's particularly, yeah. particularly when I remember you first getting into becoming very vocal <laughs> yeah becoming yeah. An, act, an activist really I guess yeah, well I mean I'm, I'm an armchair activist really I mean uh, you know I've, I've, I've been on a couple of marches but um, I'm, I'm sort of uh, not chaining myself to trees or anything but so, so uh, what kind of responses did you get on Twitter during all that and things you said you know you were coming up against the worst of humanity I'm paraphrasing there that's not exactly what you said but <laughs> yeah well actually that was a funny time because um, because we were defending the principle of being able to say whatever you wanted on Twitter um, firstly you would find yourself allied with people that otherwise you wouldn't necessarily agree with um, about anything um and often you would find yourself defending people that actually you thought were fairly horrible and actually didn't agree with what they'd said either, you know. Um, but, you know, that's the, that's the point about, you know, there is this principle that, you know, um, if you can't offend, if you don't have the freedom to offend, then you don't have the freedom to speak. 
And I think that is true to an extent. You have to be able to say things that other people might find utterly beyond the pale. Well, offence is not an absolute, is it? No. What you find offensive, I might not find offensive. And it's, it's not something you can set in stone, particularly not set in law. You can't say this is offensive because that's a moving target. It, it moves through cultures, through generations, through countries. Everything is different in every single country. And there's Ricky Gervais always does a, a good bit on it because he's a, he's a staunch atheist and he's always talking about it from a, an atheist point of view. And he's, he's, he's always saying that it's, it's not my fault if you get offended by anything that I say. That's your thing to deal with. That's, that's your problem. It, I, I don't have to apologise for offending you because I can't possibly preempt what you're going to find offensive. Obviously, there's swear words and stuff and things like that that you can preempt. But if you go to the point where you are worried about what people are going to say all the time, if, you know, if, if you're thinking somebody might be offended by this, for a start, the whole world gets very beige and magnolia. And we wouldn't have comedians and we wouldn't have people saying things outside of the pale at all. So, you know, offence is a really tough thing to take. And to a point, the whole Paul Chambers thing was a little bit about offence. It's whether they found it offensive, whether that tweet was slightly too far, whether, you know, it, it did it cross the line or not. Yeah, I mean, that was the interesting thing about that one was that kind of actually, I mean, it was clearly not a threat. And once they'd established it was not a threat, nor was it ever intended to be interpreted as a threat, that ought to have been the end of it. And and for whatever reason, it wasn't. Um, and that that's um, that was a massive overreach, I think, of, of both the law and the law enforcement um, bodies to have actually gone that far. To, to for, for the CPS to have said, there's a public interest in prosecuting this. Is, why? Um, what exactly is that? Identify it for me, please. Um, but, I mean, it's kind of understandable that, that law enforcement were worried about Twitter back then because of the kind of stuff that is said on there. And I have every sympathy with Twitter tr- struggling to try and somehow manage their community to balance this question of freedom of expression with actually Twitter being a force for good. Um, because right now you can see the evidence of... You know, the people who are shouting loudest about free speech um, are people like Milo Yiannopoulos, who's basically going around the world, um, you know, calling children unfuckable and things like that. Um, and just, yeah. But, you know, th- those th- th- that's where we're exploring the fringes of, of free speech now, is with people who are basically use. It, using free speech as um, a cover for harassment, for um, abuse, for um, dishonesty and incitement. And, and you know, it's a really difficult... <laughs> it's, it's a really difficult thing to balance, is that? It, it is, because, again, again, that's relative, and, again, that's personal. What I mean, there's, there's some obvious bits to it. You can obviously see something that is assault or you can obviously see something that's inciting things but those things are also moving targets and I do not envy Twitter and Facebook and any of these people 
who have to try and moderate this kind of stuff because you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If yeah. you if you delete the wrong thing, you've got an army of 100,000 people or millions of people getting on your back f- that's trying to remove free speech from, from people. Yeah, I mean, to be fair to them, I mean, I think, you know, realistically, um, they don't really want the far right on their platform. And actually, it wouldn't necessarily hurt them to delete quite a lot of that stuff. However, there is a counter-argument to that. They do want the far-right far right people on there because it increases engagement, it increases hits on the website, it increases all that kind of stuff on there. I don't know. I'd, I'd be surprised if it does, to be honest. I mean, obviously, you know, they get eyeballs, you know. Um, but, I mean... I would have thought that those, you know, those kind of eyeballs could be lived without, especially if you want to grow your platform into something that is mainstream, because, you know, the last thing that Twitter wants to be is basically a short form 4chan, you know, um, so, you know, I'd be, I'd be looking very seriously at this question about, you know, can we, and obviously they are doing, but you can understand or, or you can see there is a level, there's an extent to which the argument that, oh, you know, you're suppressing our free speech has some merit. Not very much, but has some merit in the sense that um, it is a very polit- politically selective form of banning that is going on at the moment. <laughs> um, but uh, I have, I have uh, al- always felt that Twitter is quite left wing. <laughs> it depends which bit of it you're going. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's obviously because of the people that I've self-selected yeah. as well. But the you know the majority of people it's it's made in San Francisco. It's quite a it's quite a liberal liberal people that run it and own it. I know I know there is pockets of things that aren't left wing, and there is people with millions of followers like Trump who is not left wing at all. But I think the majority of people on Twitter are still mostly left wing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that maybe that's a phenomenon of the way it's grown because I, I I think I would sort of agree with you that in the fairly early days when it was mostly kind of techies and techie utopians and geeks and so forth that, that were on Twitter, it was much more liberal left. And nice. Um, yeah, it was nicer. And, and, and when... <laughs> When it when it started to go mainstream, that's when you started to get the Daily Mail readers arriving, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm, I'm sort of massively, <laughs> massively oversimplifying here, but um, yeah, there was a sense that kind of the right wing arrived with the mainstream, sort of on on Twitter, um, but I mean, even in those early days. You know, you'd you'd get those those kind of pockets of neo Nazis and co- the conspiracy theorists were always there. I mean, it's a great place for the conspiracy theorists, um, but it's definitely and and you know, I mean, Daesh, ISIS. I mean, what better recruiting tool than Twitter? I mean, it's it, I imagine social media for them has been incredibly useful. <laughs> and they've got semi-official Twitter accounts as well. Mm. People like Anonymous and these kind of, I don't even know really what you'd call Anonymous, a hacker group, I guess. People mm. like that have got semi-official Twitter accounts on there as well, which you'd think really that 
they'd want to get rid of that kind of stuff. <laughs> Although uh, maybe they're afraid of getting rid of Anonymous's Twitter account because they'll just come back again. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, actually, they're quite useful of the Anonymous accounts because they're, you know, um, you don't know how how much to trust what's being said on them and who's operating them, really. But um, there can be some quite interesting observations and stuff that come out of those. And there's some thoughtful discussion that goes on under anonymous threads sometimes. Yeah. You know. I think if if we're really going to round it up, because, oh. wow, wow, two hours ten. <laughs> You're going to have some editing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't edit it at all. I just leave it all in. <laughs> really? Um I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's it's good. I'm I'm not I'm not purposefully trying to bring it to an end, but I'm just trying to bring the conversation round to a point. So even mm. if it goes on for another half an hour, that's fine. I think the whole thing we're saying in all of this is that we're still trying to figure it all out. You know, the the internet and technology, particularly things like social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, God, Snapchat, YouTube, all these kind of things are are bringing around something that none of us understand. Even people like me and you who think we understand it, we don't understand where this stuff's going. And we saw it with Paul Chambers, which was one of the first times I really saw it, where the kind of online world of Twitter clashed with the real world. They always felt very separate at that point, very separate. It was an online world that you stepped into, which was a little bit like back when we had MSN chat rooms and things like that. They felt very separate. But now they're all very much merged together and it makes makes things very confusing. And now with things like Paul Chambers, it's a little bit similar to people getting sacked all the time for putting stupid things on Facebook, people putting stupid things on Twitter, which, yeah, they deserve to get sacked for that kind of stuff. Because, you know, if, if you work as a banker or whatever and you're putting stupid shit on Facebook, you deserve to get sacked. But all of that stuff has kind of merged now and it puts us in a really strange place. Mm that nobody gets and we don't really know where it's going particularly politics particularly yeah i mean i i think the what we've got to do is try and make something positive out of the technology um and you know things like twitter are sort of they basically throw something up and then its properties are emergent they don't know what it's going to be like when they build it they just build it and then see what happens and that's that's a great model but there's nothing wrong with us um looking at technology and thinking how how can we definitely make the world a better place with this stuff well i think things like twitter and facebook now they're just there are they they're a, they're a valid distribution channel that isn't going anywhere it's not like when MySpace were around, MySpace disappeared. It, it just died. Facebook's never going to die. Twitter's probably never going to die. Those two things are just part of life now. They're not really social media networks anymore. They're something else. They're they're a new distribution channel. They're, they're like television, basically. They are a new medium. And they're here to stay. And that becomes a very different thing when it becomes like that. Because when we first started using Twitter... It wasn't a distribution channel. It was just something that geeks used. Now it's mainstream. Now it's a different ball game. And now we see companies writing social media strategies and laws being changed. And it's a very different world now. And I agree it needs to be used for positive reasons. I've, I always say that the internet is is really positive and it's really negative in equal measure. But what 
always fascinates me about the internet, which just continues to pick up pace, is how fast things can be distributed. Now, that's I think that's an endless positive. The fact that I I can go online or you can go online, and if I wanted to, this conversation we're recording now could be online within 20 minutes of this being recorded. And anybody in the world with an internet connection could listen to it. That's amazing. That is something that didn't exist 15 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. That shit's amazing. And we we too quickly forget that sometimes because (laughs) we've been talking about loads of negative stuff and all negative side of it. But the positive side of it is that distribution of information is amazing. There's nothing you can't learn on the internet now. You you can learn to play guitar. You can learn to fix your toilet. You can learn to build a shed. Anything can be learned. Your whole world is at your fingertips. Mm, mm. And I think that's what's really positive. (laughs) They are, folks. Your five minutes of positive after two hours of negative. (laughs) Excuse me. Um, Yeah, I mean, there was a a conference, the Dot York conference, uh, here a few weeks ago, and we uh, had somebody from my society here who, who, who do work with uh, democracies around the world. Oh, is that uh, a company? Building That's... technology. Well, they're, they're kind of a charity and a um, sort of a community organisation, basically. Um, but they, you know, they build websites for, um, you know, Iranian politicians and things like this, you know, Iranian opposition politicians and campaigners. Some of it's, you know, incredibly dangerous work, mm, yeah, really. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, they're they're just building the technology. I mean, the people who are actually using it, then they're, they're the ones that are in danger. But um, I found that quite inspiring because that was kind of, you know, this is something we can do with technology that is a genuine good. You know, um, that, that it's indisputable that that we've done something great here, and you know, Twitter. Um, for all that it's been um, frighteningly disruptive, it could be that eventually that disruption will improve the body politic one way or another. Um, and, you know, you only need to look at the way it's social media has completely upended the Middle East or has been contributory to the upending of the Middle East. Um, well, particularly and, when... Egypt have rioted several times. It were all over Twitter, all over Facebook. And and I mean, it's too early to say whether that's a good or a bad. Mm. (laughs) But it's it's certainly a different, and and it's um, it's it shows that it does get people talking when the government doesn't want them to be, Mm. and that's probably a good thing. That distribution of information thing again, isn't Mm. it? You can't stop the internet. You can block everything else. You can, you can make um, newspapers public and government-owned. Mm. You can try and put up a firewall in China, but even in China, messages still get through in the internet mm. through the internet because you just can't stop the internet. You can't stop that distribution of information. Where was it? I saw a photograph recently of somebody where there's an IP address of a a proxy basically written on a wall. In, uh, in graffiti Can't remember, you know Egypt or somewhere like that basically where that anybody could you know, use to get, yeah. get the message if you want to get if you want to get past the past the firewalls in your local city um, uh, and you know that kind of thing actually does sort of 
make me feel generally quite positive. Although, you know, the uh, the centrist dad in me is terrified of all this disruption. <laughs> I, I think, particularly in the UK, or in fact globally, the first politician that really takes hold of the internet and uses it properly is going to be in power immediately. Mm. Whoever it is, I mean... At the minute, we've got. People. I think Jez is doing quite a good job of that. To be fair, he's doing, he's doing, yeah, he's doing a good job. But there's still, it's still rooted in what's normal. You know, he, he still takes part in in debates. He, he still he still does a lot of normal stuff. He still goes campaigning, etc., etc. Mm. The first politician that jumps on Snapchat and starts using Snapchat to talk to kids. In a nice way, the <laughs> first politician that uses yeah. that starts streaming all his speeches on Facebook Live and YouTube Live, mm. the first politician that starts talking to YouTube streamers, all that kind of stuff. The first politician mm. that, that utilizes all that stuff is going to be president or yeah. prime minister. I think. I mean, that's the thing. Is kind of um, who was it who wrote? Politicians are weird. And that's that's the problem. Is actually, um, it's quite difficult when you put a politician in that kind of situation because they're often crap at it. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I mean, Tony Blair was a bit of um, an outlier on this, as was Barack Obama, as, as, as politicians who basically are superb communicators. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, can flip from being you know a lovable lovable uncle to being sort of a weird granddad yeah you know there is uh, a lot of that especially when he was talking to grime artists and things yeah. like that and, and yeah and, and a slight awkwardness about it yeah but people embrace it though don't they yeah yeah well i mean that's the thing is kind of with him it's kind of for some reason it's 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 forgiven um perhaps because he he seems genuinely unconcerned about it and he genuinely wants to talk to these people it's not just a pr thing um uh, but I mean, Ed Miliband, just—I mean, bless him. I—I I, I love the guy, but I mean, as as a as a polished politician, he just—he, you know, only in in an Ardman world would that work. <laughs> Did you see that whole Twitter campaign just before the election was called, where people oh, the yeah, I can't Millie remember, fandom, yeah, Millie fandom, where people mm. were posting pictures of him saying how sexy he was and everything and. Yeah, I thought that were brilliant. That was the only good bit of everything. That did cheer me up a lot. Whether, whether he whether he did it or not, I don't know. But no, it was he, still, yeah, it was a young lass. I, I still follow her on Twitter. Actually, I can't remember her name now. But um, yeah, it was, I think she was nineteen at the time, and it was just started it for a joke, and the press picked it up, and yeah. off it went. Um, and when that nineteen-year-old who did that turns into a politician in thirty years' time. She'll be a superstar. <laughs> They've all moved on by then. Yeah, all of her skills will be irrelevant because that's the problem: is you spend thirty years learning to be a politician, and you've forgotten how normal people work yeah. anymore. That's that, that's true. I think that's where technology is going to influence it. Mm. That's where, when all of these in maybe twenty, thirty years' time, when all of those old politicians are dead, and we've got a new wave of politicians that have grown up with social media. And after that, when we've got politicians that were using an, an iPhone in the hand when they were six months old, that's that's a game changer. <laughs> those people, they are, they are born and bred technology, and politics will be very very different then. Possibly, possibly. 
I mean, I think actually you do need you do need the weirdos. Actually, I mean the the weird politicians are the best ones. Because <laughs> um, the problem with the polished ones is that they know how to manage all the PR. I mean, this was always the danger with the kind of Bla- Blairite era was that those people Teflon Tony. Yeah, they, 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 they you know they knew how to to manage the public image stuff. Um, they weren't necessarily interested in what voters really felt. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's where um, that's where I'd hope that the young generation now that mm. love people like Jeremy Corbyn that are, are really left leaning, I hope that when they come, grow up, they'll turn in. Some of them will turn into politicians that do genuinely care what people want and need and it turns into something much more positive than it is now that rather than people who are just trying to make a political career I think that's the biggest problem isn't it that the people are trying to make a career just like we all are they're just trying to make a career out of politics that it's not they're not doing it even if they initially wanted to do it for good for social good eventually they become part of a party and then it stops being good they mm. They're influenced by whips and yeah. I mean, it's that it's that old phenomenon of kind of anybody who actually wants to be prime minister probably shouldn't be, <laughs> you know. Um, and I suppose that's one of the other things that's quite endearing about Jeremy Corbyn is that he's he's done so many career sabotaging things in his career. Um, you know, he's never towed the party line. He's never sort of played. He never played along with the Blairites at all. Um, it almost feels like he was just pushed into actually standing to be leader of the Labour Party anyway because they needed somebody who was kind of um, an old school socialist. It, it was reportedly a-, a joke, wasn't it? And, and he accidentally won. Yeah. You know, um, and that makes him quite endearing as well because it's kind of like, well, you know, he actually he doesn't, he didn't necessarily want this job, but now that he's been given it... Um, He'll have a bloody good go at it. Yeah, um... And, you know, you can see the appeal of that, really. Because, yeah. I mean, we, we've had so many polished, uh, you know, just, well, uh, we, we go, we go, we sort of oscillate between polished people and, and the grey weirdos. Mm. That's, Be- that's kind of what we do. Yeah, because po- country. polished polish represents strong and stable and <laughs> weirdo rec- represents newness and different and trying. That's exactly what happened with Trump and Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton represented 10, 12, 15 years of a government that wasn't working and Trump represented something that wasn't really part of a party. Mm. Uh, he was something different and that's why everybody voted for him mm. b- because he represented difference. That's what everybody does every time, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, vote for change. Everybody yeah. goes on about change, don't they? And I think the only reason last time in the last, well, two... How many elections ago is it now? Two or three? When Ed Miliband were there? Two, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, 2015 was the one... That There's the, been yeah. too many elections for me yeah. to remember. I think the only reason that Labour didn't get in that time is because they had Ed Miliband and he was useless if they would have had... David plausibly might have won that election. David plausibly would have, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. But well, maybe he wouldn't. I mean, you, you know, it's... it's it's easy to sort of go back and say, oh, you know, if we'd had somebody more polished, then, then it would have all been fine. But it's, it's, it's so hard to say. I mean... Um, Nobody would have predicted Jeremy Corbyn, would they? No, indeed. Um, and it's possible that another polished Blairite would have actually pushed more Labour voters away. Um, although, 
whether it would have pushed them into the arms of well it probably wouldn't have pushed them into the arms of Cameron but it might have pushed more of them into the arms of UKIP yeah that's true um, so it's it's very hard to say but um, I, I certainly think that um, somebody who comes along with a kind of really simple message you know um, seems it always appeals to, 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 to enough people yeah um, and that was a point I was going to make yeah. earlier the reason that UKIP became so popular is because it's a simple message mm. it's just we want to leave the EU we want to become independent we want to take back control all they've got to do is hammer that home constantly they, they, they've got no manifesto they don't need to explain anything complicated they just say <laughs> we want to leave that's it leave yeah. leave leave and everything will be fine once we've done that exactly <laughs> except it won't um yeah and that's the that's the kind of problem is that actually there's a lack of depth um and you know one might have hoped that social media and the amount of information that we're being given now would have actually given us more depth in our politics, but it seems to have reduced our attention span. To tweets. Mm. Mm. So uh, that's the other thing we can hope for, is that, you know, as as things go on, we get better at absorbing more complicated information again. Mm. <laughs> Somehow. Yeah. I well, I mean, Twitter's made the tweets longer, so, you know, that'll help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Unless there's anything else to say, I'm going to wrap it up there. We've gone from negativity to hope, and I'm, I want to leave it on a hopeful note. Oh, there's plenty to hope for, I think. <laughs> there's plenty to hope Plenty for. to hope for. <laughs> Cool, I'll leave it there. managed to stick around for the end of the episode i know that went on a very long time but i didn't want to cut any of this episode because it was so fascinating me and matt both or rather matt and i both love talking about politics and we go we went really deep on it and talked a lot about it about a lot of opinions and the ways that life work and yeah i really love that episode even i hope even if you don't agree with the politics points that we both raised because both me and Matt, or Matt and I, again, get your grammar right, Craig. Both Matt and I are quite um, quite left-leaning. We're not very lefty. We're not completely loony lefty, but we're quite left-leaning. So a lot of the things that we said in this episode, are, you know, they're kind of left-leaning. So I hope you understand that. And if you're more right-leaning, I hope you still got something out of it. And I hope you enjoyed listening to two left-leaning people talking about politics particularly British politics, but we even touched on Trump and all sorts of stuff. In another two weeks' time, I'm going to be releasing another episode. The next episode is with a fantastic, very interesting chap called Tanner Guzzi. He's an American style coach. His website is masculine-style.com and I love this episode. I actually, sorry Tana, I actually recorded this episode twice because the first time we recorded it, I messed up and we didn't manage to get all of the sound from it. And yeah, it was so embarrassing. But because Tana's a lovely guy, he actually put up with me and we recorded it again. And actually the second version, the version that will be released in two weeks time is better than the first version, considerably better than the first version. So tune in in another two weeks' time for that episode with Tana Guzzi. This was Matt Bradley's episode. I am Craig Virgis. And if you want to find out more, go over to interestpodcast.com. 
you'll see all the old episodes on there and yeah pretty much nothing else anyway that's it i will see you in another two weeks thank you so much for listening see you soon